How much debt do you technically have? 255 million, something like that. Pace Morby is the guy for all things real estate. He hosts a show, Triple Digit Flip on AE. He owns thousands of rental properties, and he does it all with something called creative financing, which is a really fancy way of saying he's able to build wealth without using any of his own money. Total amount of real estate that we own is somewhere around 300 million. Today, we get to have him break down exactly how he invests in real estate, the best ways to get started, and how you are able to own your own home, even if you don't have a ton of money. So we we really hope you enjoy this one. As always, if you're not already subscribed, totally free, takes you a split second. And as a thank you, here's a picture of a green-eyed, blue, red-eyed tree frog. How's that? <laughs> right. like Let's get on with the episode. All right. Graham. Enjoy. Welcome to the Iced Coffee Hour. Big fan. I really appreciate it. I freaking, it. dude, seriously, yeah. you are the king of YouTube. I tell everybody all the time, the king of YouTube. Graham stuff. Jeez. Thank that you, is man. A very yeah. nice that's thing to say. That's a great title. Yeah, Why do you say that, title. Jack? Me? Oh, <laughs> Here's the thing is people behind closed doors, like people that are trying to build YouTube channels, they all compare their channel to what you're doing. Four years ago, five years ago, still today, you have continually reinvented yourself and done mm. a great job. You guys are killing it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. But today is all about you. And you've done some pretty yeah. incredible things. And you were also telling me about something right before we shot this podcast episode that blew my mind. I had no idea that this statistic actually existed. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I told you, I cut you off and I said, wait, wait, we got to save it for the podcast. So yeah. Graham can react to it yeah, yeah. and I can get an authentic oh, reaction as this? well. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. You probably okay. already know this. Uh, there, there's currently 600,000 homes that are non-performing in the United States. And so um, we're starting a business right now. We've got a servicing company that's like, take these houses off of our plate. Just take them. And so we're dividing them out and conquering these houses. I mean, literally yeah. 600,000 houses, the services will services will pay you. They'll pay you $1,000 to just take over these houses. Can we get this in layman's terms? Yes. What do you mean by non-performing? So uh, people that are living in the homes that went out and got a loan, right? There's a servicing company that's receiving those payments on behalf of the, the lender. The homeowner stops making a payment. Mm -hmm. And it's very expensive for a bank or a servicer to actually foreclose on a home. And so a lot of times they just don't. They look at the house and they go, it's not worth it for us. And so they go, we, we will actually pay somebody to take this mortgage and take, it, take over the mortgage. 600,000 of them a year, just sitting there. These mor the mortgage servicing companies will pay you about $1,200 per house to just mm -hmm. take them off their books. So if you want 1,000 houses today, they'll pay you a million dollars to take the houses. Now, what's what's the normal range for non-performing houses? 600,000 to me in the US seems relatively low. My understanding is that there's a few million per year prior to the pandemic that just people fall behind on payments. They're more the than time. like, I think it's more than 120 days late. It's in the millions. Uh, you're talking millions and millions. We're, ta we're talking right now just the ones that people will pay us to take. I see. Yeah, yeah. So it's a subset of those. Correct. That, what's the situation on that? Is it just there's, they're not so underwater on it, but it's like just, you know, right on the line of like, okay, maybe we could break even on this. Yep. But It's interesting because yeah. what, we what we're planning on doing in that business is essentially going to the servicer and saying, pay us. $1,200 per house to take them off your books. What are we going to do with them, right? I'm not just going to take over a thousand houses. That's a lot of burden because now I've got people living in these homes that now I'm the bank, right? I'm the note holder. That's a problem. I don't just own the house. I'm the lender on the house mm -hmm. now. So I have to do something with these houses. I have to either A, get them performing again. So calling the homeowners and saying, hey, let's renegotiate. Let's make sure you're taken care of, which is what we is the ideal situation. Or B, we go, hey, let's short sell these. Or C, we go to them and offer them cash to walk away, like cash for keys to walk away, and then we put them into the portfolio. Or D, 
you could wholesale them to fix and flippers. Or I guess another way is you could wholesale or you could fix and flip them, fix and flip them yourself if you choose to do mm -hmm. that. Which I'm not, I don't love fixing and flipping. It's just a big construction game. That's all it is. Sure. And what's the status on these houses? Were they bought recently, like in this past year or so? And also, like, are they in fine condition? Oh, that's a, kind of just a, that's a different statistic. So houses that were bought in 2021, 2022, there's about 450,000 of them that are already underwater from people buying them in 2022. And now the market has gone down an average of about 16% in the last year, the, you know, the U.S. And so those people that bought FHA or VA, they're significantly underwater, right? And is that like disproportionately high? It's very high, yeah. Mm. I mean, but think the about payments are so low, though. I mean, payments the are low. Side, Interest rates are the really, really are still low. lower than if they bought the same house today, twenty percent less. But it's nobody's buying in the past few months and already is underwater, like with the super high interest rates and also the high prices. Yeah, if they, if they put three percent down, they're underwater. Yeah, hundred percent. You have to think it, it, it's going to cost them six percent just to sell. So, like right off the bat, then they're losing three percent, assuming the market's the same. And then imagine the market goes down 5%. I think that's the part that most people don't understand about real estate is if I buy a house today for 200,000 and then I turn around and sell it for 200,000, most people think, oh, you're going to break even. Mm. But people that are in real estate, we know, man, you're going to lose probably close to 10% because you've got real realtor commissions plus closing costs. Sometimes you'll have inspection stuff and you'll have other weird concessions that you have to pay as the seller. The seller pays all of that expense. So what's happening right now for us, like, I've got an email just popped up here like 15 minutes ago. This is actually one of my big business models is that people come to me and they go, hey, I've got a house in San Antonio. I'll let you just take over the house and the mortgage at 3.6%. So I haven't taken, I haven't bought a house over 4% in a long, long time. Even right now, interest rates are at seven and a half, eight percent 8%, right? For homeowners. What I do and what people know me for is I just take over other people's existing mortgages subject to or I buy them on seller finance. So explain this deal. Mm -hmm. They got a 30 year fixed rate loan at 3.65%. Mm -hmm. What and do you do in that situation? They're behind on it. Yep, so they bought, they bought it. Um, let's see, they're, they're not behind. Okay, so they're not behind on payments. Okay. Three bed, two bath house, 1,235 square feet. It was built in 2021, so basically brand new. Sure. Okay, first lien position, 192,000. Their payment on that house is eleven fifty five. So I immediately look at that and they go, "We're trying to sell this, but if we sold it and paid realtor commissions and all that stuff, we're going to walk away having to write a check to get rid of our house." Mm -hmm. So somebody like me comes along, and goes, "The asset is actually not really the house. The actual the asset is actually the debt. A three point six five percent that I don't have to apply for. That's the craziest thing about real estate. I don't even have to apply for that loan. I don't have to assume it." I don't have to apply for it. Nobody checks my bank balance. Nobody asks for my tax returns. Nobody asks for anything. No job history, nothing. I literally go to a title company. They transfer the deed into my name. I now own the property. The deed, the mortgage stays in the seller's name. Now, don't a lot of these mortgages have a due on sale clause? Oh, yeah, 100%. So, so I, what happens there? So due on sale clause is something you should definitely be worried about. Mm -hmm. um, I own title companies across the United States. So we do see them from time to time. It's about one in 500 times that a sub two transaction, this is a sub two transaction where the seller walks away, mortgage stays in their name, I take over the existing mortgage. What am I gonna do with that property? I could do a variety of things. I could turn that into a traditional rental. I could do section eight, depending on the neighborhood. I could do midterm rentals like traveling nurses, corporate rentals. Sober living is really, really good if you wanna mm -hmm. do sober living. I love sober living, not because I operate sober living, but because I find operators who do sober living and they pay double the rent rate to operate sober living. Does that what make is sense? Sober, I don't know what that is. Sober living is like somebody goes into a drug addiction center and the government essentially gets them through, pays for that um, service. 
And then when they leave, they need a place to stay. And the government pays that $650 to $750 per bed. So most of these sober living facilities have seven to 10 beds in a house and the government's paying $750 per bed. They don't have to be licensed yeah. to do this. It's a big business in Beverly Hills. When I was an agent, huge. You would almost have to. Hills? You, would, you would almost have to ask when someone. You would have these houses with like seven to ten bedrooms in them, and it got to a point where I got so many calls, and I would automatically say, "Is this for sober, sober living?" Because there were so many of them, and they would offer more than what we were charging in rent. Yeah, double. Interesting. Yeah, most of the time, double. Yeah. So you could look at a house like this that is my payment that I'm taking over, right? Because I'm taking over somebody's payment is 1155 bucks. A regular rent rate on this is 1500 or yeah, about 15 1600 bucks. So on a reg Cody Sanchez friend of mine, she always trashes real estate investors cuz she's like, "Oh, I don't want to go buy houses because I'm only making $400 a month in cash flow." I'm like, "Yeah, if you're doing traditional rental, but if you do midterm or short term, which is Airbnb, or you do sober living, you're double cash flow. Mm -hmm. Plus, I have a fixed debt for 30 years, right? And what happens to rents every 3 years?" I get to bump my rents 150 bucks. My debt doesn't change, but my rent, I can just keep bumping my rent every three years. Now, what happens though, if the due on sale clause oh, this is, comes up? This is great, it happens? does happen. Okay, okay. first time, um, there's a couple of things about this, and this is something that real estate agents don't know, but it is in, in the, the real estate exam. It's like that 20% that they fail on. It's, the, uh, it's called an executory contract, okay? So have you ever sold a car cash? I have. Okay. And you have a title, right? Mm -hmm. And you sign the title, you notarize it and you hand it to your buyer. Yep. When does the buyer become the owner of that car? I believe it's as soon as they sign, right? As soon, so they don't sign. You are the only one that signs. Okay. Right. So you sign over the title. The second they have possession of the title sure. is when they become the owner. Okay. Why? Because they now control the asset. Sure. Does that make sense? So they can go down to the DMV or MVD, whatever they call it. And you can record that document today, or you can record it in a week. You can record it in 30 days, but you're the owner because you control that document. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So what triggers the due on sale clause? I'm going to come back to that. What triggers the due on sale clause? Probably when you report it, right? There you go. Okay. When the deed is transferred, right? So this is interesting. Jack, you're not a real estate guy, right? I have a house, but that's about it. Love it. Okay, cool. So you have a house, you have a mortgage, right? Yes. So you pay a payment Yeah. and you're the owner. Yes. Cool. So think about this. If I go to a grocery store and I use a credit card. You're a big credit card guy. You like credit cards, mm -hmm. right? I go buy groceries with a Visa credit card. Mm -hmm. Those groceries come to me, but I use somebody else's money to buy them. Who's the owner of those groceries? Me. How do you know you use somebody else's money? Because I have possession of them. Okay, possession, but you also have something else. What else do you have? The receipt. Oh, okay. Okay, sure. the receipt proves that you have ownership, right? So in real estate, what is the receipt? It's the deed. Mm -hmm. Whoever has the deed or control of the deed is the owner of real estate. So your mortgage company is not the owner of your house, right? No, they're not. They're not. Just like the credit card company is not the owner of those groceries. So there's the debt and then there's the ownership documents. They're not the same. They're exclusively separate. So you're saying you just hold the deed? You can. Okay. So let me get to this. Okay. I'm building up to it. Sure. So if I take over a deed on a sub two transaction right here on the San Antonio deal, okay, if I take over the deed, and let's say in six months, the mortgage company notices. This is when he says due on sale clause. This is what that means. Mortgage company goes, hey, Pace took over that house subject to without paying off the debt. They transferred the ownership from owner A to Pace without paying us off. 
they have the ability, not the obligation, they have the ability to demand that I pay them off because I, I bought the house. That's just in full with the entire yes. house. In full. Yeah. Okay. Usually it's like 60 days or something like yeah, that. It's, yeah. So they have to go through the foreclosure process to ha make it happen. Okay. So that's called the due on sale clause. So that poses a risk to two people, poses a risk to the person who sold the house to you. And then it also poses a risk to you who just bought the house where you're like, I didn't put any money down. I took over the, the mortgage payments. I've now got tenants in this property. I'm cash flowing. Those tenants are paying down this mortgage that I just took over. This thing is awesome. All of a sudden I get a letter in the mail that says, we demand you pay us. That's the due on sale clause. What do you do in that situation? You could do a couple of things. One, you could sell the house, but what happens if you don't have equity? Mm -hmm. Well, you could refinance it, but that doesn't really, that's not fun because now you got to bring money to the table. Or you can go back to the bank and you can renegotiate with them, which is usually what we'll do and say, hey, just so you know, we did buy it subject to, but we're performing and we're making the payments. 90% of the time they're fine with it. The first time I ever had the do on sale clause happen to me, and you're going to enjoy this as, a, as a, mm -hmm. a very intelligent real estate guy. It's a house on Lost Dutchman Trail. House was in foreclosure. I catch up the arrears, right? It was $21,000. You know what that means? Catch up the arrears? Uh, was that just the lost payments? There you go. So they're, they were behind on five months of payments. I came up in and I caught up the payments. The very next day I took the deed to the house, but I kept the mortgage in place and bought it mm -hmm. subject to. So I get a letter about a month later and it's a bank called Johnson Bank. Really small branch, like teeny little branch, four mm -hmm. branches. And the letter says, we demand that you pay us. Mm -hmm. we're, we're calling the due on sale clause or the acceleration clause as sometimes they call it. And so we call the bank. I luckily get a hold of, magically, it's a, such a small bank. I get a hold of the actual owner of the bank. I go, hey, my name's Pace. We caught up the, the arrears. I bought the house sub two. What's the problem? He goes, oh, no, no. We saw that you caught up the arrears. That's great. I appreciate that. A lot of our clients buy sub two. It's not a problem, but there's a better way to do this with a bank like us. I go, okay, what's the way to do this? So he says, I suggest you do it one of two ways. Either A, deed the property back to the homeowner so that it doesn't, it untriggers the due on sale clause. Mm -hmm. And in that case, now have him deed the property back to you, but don't record the transaction. So essentially holding the title and what we do in those situations, if the due on sale clause happens, I deed it back to the homeowner. Homeowner re-signs the deed back to me, but I hold it in a safety deposit box. But now... <laughs> Isn't the city going to get involved because now it's let, let's just say the property is going to be reassessed at a different price. Now, now the city is not reassessing a property at the latest sale price. Correct. Yeah. They get reassessed. Yeah. But would they not though? Because you're not recording a deed. No. In, in, in a sub two transaction. No, they're not. Re, they're not reassessing. No. In, is, is that not a problem with the city? I mean, we've never a, ran into or, it. or a state. I feel like a state like California would be cracking down and and because they want their money and they want the the city and local revenues on that. I've never we've never ran into it. And the average time we hold a property is seven to ten years anyway, right? We'll refinance or we'll pull equity out of the deal or we'll sell the house or whatever else. Never ran into that at all. Never once. And what if you miss a payment? Isn't there? Oh, if a we miss to the hundred percent, hundred percent. Just like if you if Jack misses a payment on his mortgage, there's risk to his mortgage company, right? There's definitely risk to the homeowner for sure. But they're putting a lot of trust in you not to make that right. So it depends, right? Payment. So there there's two different. Well, let's go back to the Johnson Bank thing real quick, and sure. I'll, I'll put a cap on that, and then we'll go to that because this is a really good question. Sure. So that's one way you can do it, or you so you can buy it on an executory contract. That's what that's called. Right. So when you sign your title over on a car that you own and you sign that off in that situation, that's called an executory contract it means he has not executed the final part of the transaction. And he holds that in limbo until your let's say you sell a car to a homeowner or to the next car owner. He changes the 
car tires, he paints it. Uh -huh. He could essentially take the title, never record it, and then hand it to the next buyer and upcharge it. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. That's an executory contract. So you can do it in an executory contract where it doesn't get recorded, or B, you can do it as a lease option where the option price is the mortgage balance the day you execute the option. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay, so that that overcomes the due on sale clause. But then that also implies that the seller is actually paying down the mortgage, correct? Right, so you put in the lease option that the payments that you, the buyer or the lease option tenant is paying actually pay down the mortgage and the buyer gets credit for those payments. And what about in the event of a lawsuit? Let's just say someone sues and they, they try to go after the property, but the property's not in your name, the property's in the seller's name or vice versa. They get in a lawsuit and someone sees, well, there's a deed to this house that right. they technically own. Right. What would happen? So what you do is your agreement for sale in Arizona or contract for deed or land contract or whatever it's called in other states, technically an executor contract, it, the agreement gets attached to the property and protects you from a lawsuit. The deed does not get transferred, if that makes sense. So somebody coming after the property trying to, to sue the owner will pull up and go, oh, wow, the owner actually doesn't control this asset anymore. It's this person who controls they the asset. Couldn't anyone who gets sued technically say, well, no, yes. I transferred the deed over mm -hmm. here and he just never recorded it. Oh, Isn't yeah. that a way to get out of any yeah. lawsuit if yeah. someone tries to sue I you? I see people do it all the time. I had somebody that when I was a contractor 10 years ago, I had somebody owed me money and I go, I went to go sue them and they transferred the deed to one of their other LLCs on a property I tried to sue them on. Happens all the time. I feel like there's got to be a clause in there because otherwise everyone would be doing this. Just like every asset it's that happening, they own, it's they happening would just be thousands of times in every deeds, state. It's happening all the time. But then not the recording time. them. Yeah, it happens all the time. If you look in any state, it's called an executory contract. It's legal. It's been around for hundreds of years. It's happening all the time. I bet you in Vegas, it's happening a thousand times a month or more. Our title companies, we probably see 10% of the time in Arizona, 10% of the transactions we see are called agreement for sale transactions, mm -hmm. which means the deed does not get transferred. A servicing company holds the deed in limbo until the, the buyer ends up doing something with that, that property. Does that make sense? So what's the risk? Because I'm, I'm still skeptical, man. There's a lot of risk, but yeah, there's a lot of risk. First yeah. offhand mm -hmm. little question. Mm -hmm. I've, been, I've been like thinking in my head for a while. If somebody is holding a note and they're making a mortgage payment, paying for the utilities and everything like that, for yeah. example, in that the numbers that you provided right there, yeah. as soon as they become a renter, their monthly expense on the house is just going to be immediately increased. And what you're doing is basically paying them back the five to 20% or whatever, how much equity they have in the house. You're saying um, in this situation, so this person that I'm taking over their mortgage, yeah, they're not staying in the house. Oh, that's cardinal. That's like cardinal sin of creative okay, finance. So you don't, never, you never let the homeowner stay in the house. You, the, you buy the house from them. So there's two ways to do this. There's subject to, right? That's me taking over the existing mortgage mm -hmm. and then there's seller finance. Okay. What is, what's the difference between the two? Difference is seller finances. There's no debt, right? The seller then finances me, right? And the way I explain that to people is, um, the way I, um, explain seller finances. I sold an F one fifty. Actually, I sold another F one fifty last week. Kelly Blue Book Value is twenty grand. I sold it for forty seven thousand on seller finance. How did I do that? I went to somebody who doesn't have credit, and I said, "Hey, make me five hundred dollars payments at forty forty thousand dollars plus interest, and I can seller finance you." Right? We just create an, a promissory note, and that's the agreement between two parties. Seller finance, pretty simple. Um, subject two means there's an existing debt. Right? I'm taking over car payments would be subject two. Right. If you go on my YouTube channel, you'll see I buy people's cars subject to mm -hmm. in subject to people have pain in seller finance. The sellers are have there have a desire for gain. OK, subject to handles a need. Seller finance satisfies greed. 
Okay. So when you say, well, there's risk for the homeowner. Well, typically I'd say 80% of the transactions that we do with subject to the homeowner is in foreclosure. They're in some really bad situation. They're going to lose the house anyway. And we come along and go, guys, do not let this house go to foreclosure. Uh, that debt is a really good debt. I'll pay you five grand or two grand or a thousand bucks, or I'll pay your moving expenses to move to an apartment. Do not let that house go to foreclosure. Let me catch up your arrears. Let me get the, the mortgage back in good standing and rebuild your credit. And I'll take over that house and the responsibility of it. Now that's not going to be like somebody that doesn't want to be a real estate investor, but I'm a real estate investor. That's what I want. Mm -hmm. Cause otherwise, how am I buying rental properties? Mm -hmm. I'm going to a mortgage company and I'm having them pull my credit. They're going to limit me to 10, maybe 12 mortgages at a time. And I'm going to put down 20, 30%, especially in this economy. I'm going to get a mortgage at 7%, 8%. I haven't gotten a mortgage over three, 0.8% in probably seven, eight yeah. years. It seems like something the mortgage industry though would love to crack down on because maybe wouldn't they want to get these loans off of their books at 3% so they could well, reissue the a new Well, the mortgage loan? company, this is, this is happening all behind the scenes anyway. Right? If you go back and you watch the big short, these guys are swapping mortgages all the time. Mortgage companies don't hold notes. Mm-hmm. What mortgage companies do is they originate a loan and then they sell the right, loan but off. Even, but the original investor mm -hmm. now wants to have that 3% loan paid off, charged off. They want to get that off their books to make way for something at 6% or 5%. Yeah, I think- so. The value of their yeah. loans go down because they have all these 3% loans out there when you could get 6% right now. Yeah, 100%, so. but I don't think they have the technology or the the know-how the know to go back and go, all right, we're gonna go to these ones and know whether these are homeowners or real estate investors. And nor can they come and call a note on a 30-year fixed deal if you haven't violated or done something wrong, right? Subject two's been around for hundreds of yeah. years. But don't they still reserve the right yeah. To yeah, yeah, yeah. do the to call the loan. Yes. Even even if you call them, I've had the I've had the do on, I've yeah. had the do on sale clause called yeah. me five times where we were not able to negotiate with the bank, mm -hmm. and every single time we just deeded the property back and repurchased on a lease option. Okay. That's it. Do on sale clause, and I've never known one person, one person ever that has lost a property due on sale. Mm. Never once. It's the boogeyman. It, it's like the number one thing that real estate agents and brokers bring up to me because it's something they were taught in real estate school or maybe like continued education credits. And I'm like, guys, that's a boogeyman. Find one person that's ever lost a house to do on sale. Because they all bring it up to me, mm -hmm. but none of them have an, one single example ever. Yep. And I've even when I'm the creative finance guy, everybody in the country calls me, I've never met one person that's lost a house to do on sale clause. Never once. And I've had it called on me, but I know how to overcome it. Sure. And it is, it is a risk for sure. Yeah. How did you get started in all this? What's, uh, what's your background? Um, I was a contractor for a long time and, um, I worked for open door offer pad Zillow. I was their contractor mm. and I would go around and I would set up all their locations. So I set up Dallas for them and Vegas for them. And I would take the red eye and just bounce around setting up construction sites. And I was, um, you know, I own my own construction company and I did about 7,000 renovations for these guys. So I knew the industry up and down and I had this homeowner that would not a homeowner. She was a flipper. Her name is Bethany. And Bethany calls me up. She goes, Hey, you have a great reputation. I see you flipping all these houses for the, uh, these other investors come flip a house for me. And I go flip a house for her. I'm a contractor. I got my crews. So we go crush it for her. done. Do a second house done. She calls me for a third house. I show up early and she comes up behind me, pulls up behind me, knocks on my glass. And she goes, get out of your truck right now. She like makes me come and sit on the back bed of my truck. And I'm like, what did I do? And she's like, why aren't you in real estate? I go, what do you mean? She's like, every contractor I know shows up late. They overbid me, they overcharge, they make excuses. You are the opposite, 
opposite of that. Why are you a contractor? I go, I, I, I don't know. She goes, why aren't you in real estate? And I go, I am in real estate. And I was lying to myself. I thought I was in real estate. And she says something that, that really shocked me. She said, you're not in real estate. You're a service provider to me. And I'm in real estate. You are a simple Google search away from being replaced. And I was like, dang. She says, you're as replaceable as a mobile notary. I can Google and get a different mobile notary. You're as replaceable as a real estate agent. If I don't like my agent, I'll switch them out. You're as replaceable as the mortgage company. You're as replaceable as my private money lender. I'm going to ask you again, why are you not in real estate? You figured out the hardest part of real estate, which is the construction, right? Like when you built your house, I'm sure you had delays and you went up, there was budget things and change orders and all that kind of stuff. That's actually the hardest part of real estate is the construction and renovations and the permits and all, all the, pro like that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. And I go, I guess I don't know where the deals come from. I have no idea where the deals come from. I just assumed that you guys know something I don't know. And I also don't know where the money comes from. And so she broke it down and she, she says, I want you to send out a swath of postcards. And I'm like, postcards? Like, I don't know anything about sending out postcards. And she stops and she calls me an asshole. She's like, stop being an asshole and ask, like, you keep asking all these questions. Take some freaking action. Pull out your phone and call this postcard company. I'm like, but what do I tell them? She goes, you don't have to tell them anything. They know what the heck to do. They know where to send the postcards, what they should look like, what zip codes, blah, 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 blah. So I, she makes me a call right there. I send out. 10,000 postcards. And I get my first deal two weeks later. I got a, a deal from a lady named Janie Munson. I made 25 grand on it. And I was like, this took me three hours of work to do this. Why am I a freaking contractor? It took me, you know, I'm working as a contractor, making good money. I made, I, I made my first million dollars in a year back in 2014, 2013 from open door. Open door paid me. They never squabbled at prices. They paid me on time. I was their shining golden boy. And I took home a million bucks back in 2013, 2014 and took home after taxes. Um, and then Bethany also pointed out to me, she says, if you were actually in real estate and you made all that money, you would have taken home 1.6. I'm like, really? I knew nothing about cost segregation. I knew nothing about, uh, you know, depreciation, I knew mm. nothing about any of that stuff. So here I am paying all these taxes and so she sat me down and she really taught me how to get into the business. I got my first deal and that first deal was a cash deal. Do you want me to tell you how I got the deal? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I knew nothing. I didn't know how to fill out a contract. I didn't know how to comp a house. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. But Bethany says, says send out the postcards. So I send out the postcards. Third phone call I get is a, a lady named Janie. Janie, retiring school teacher, has lived in the house for over 40 years. Think she's renovated that house as a school teacher? No. House is in horrible condition. 40 years, not renovated. The hot water heater was like 25 years old. Mm. Like the fact that it made it that long is surprising. So she calls me up and I go, she, I go, hi, this is Pace. She goes, um, you buy houses, right? And I go, yeah, I, but I had no idea what I was doing, right? Mm -hmm. I, and she goes, so what's our next step? I go, I don't know. So I mm. literally get on the other line. I go, can I ask my partner? So I call Bethany on the other line, the lady who told me to send out postcards. I go, I got a lead, but I don't know what to do. She's like, you go on a freaking appointment, you idiot. Go to the house, take photos, go meet the person. Like, what do you think you're going to do? Okay. I, that's how little I knew about the real estate game. Right. And so I get on the other line. I set the appointment. I go meet with her and I walk into her kitchen. We start building rapport. I look on her kitchen table and there's real estate agent cards, there's postcards, there's letters. She's got a whole massive amount of people that have been marketing to her. Mm -hmm. And so I asked her the question. I was like, really genuinely had no idea. I'm like, why have you not sold your house? Like you've got all these people. What do you need me for? She goes, well, I've met with 15 people already. 
Have you ever met, like when you were doing listing appointments, did you meet with anybody that would take the time to go to 15, like take 15 agents time? Usually no. No, yeah. it's like two, maybe three, three right? Yeah. So she went through 15 mm. before she called me. So she called, I go, okay, well, what, what's kept you from selling the house? And she says, I have an offer, but it's not high enough. And I go, what's the offer? Now, here's the thing. Before I tell you what her offer was, on my drive up to the house, I called Bethany and go, what should I pay for the house? Mm -hmm. I give her the address. She comps it. She says, as a fix and flipper, Bethany was a fix and flipper, I would pay 150 for the house, sight unseen. So don't offer her anything over 150. I'll partner with you on the deal. I'll be your partner and we'll go flip it together. I go, okay. So when uh, Janie says, well, I already have an offer, but it's not high enough. I go, how much is it? She says, 165000 and when you're brand new, like Jack, you haven't been in any of these appointments. Could you talk a lady from 165 down to 150 that's about to retire? Uh, almost certainly no. Hell no. Like hell no. I'm like, what do I do here? So I came to the conclusion I couldn't help her. So I told her I couldn't help her. And as I was walking out of the house, I stop and I say, look, I can't help you. I can't offer that much money, but is there anything I can do to help you? And she's like, I'm so confused. You want to help me, but you don't want to buy my house? what are you a boy scout? And I go, yeah, actually I'm a boy scout. I'm, I'm an Eagle scout. And I was like all proud of it. Cause when I was growing up, my mom's like, you have to get your Eagle scout. Cause one day somebody's going to ask you, are you an Eagle scout? And you're going to be able to say yes. I'm like, I've never been asked. I know. I you were an Eagle scout. I, no, I said, I've never been asked. I, I, oh, yeah, no I ever right. been like, yeah, but you're still young, Graham. You got plenty of time. <laughs> you got plenty of time. You can do it. You yeah. can still do all it. Right. So I said, yeah, I'm an Eagle Scout. And she goes, well, what do you, what do you, what can you do to help me? I go, I got crews. I got my guys. They can come load your truck. We can do whatever. You're a retiring school teacher. I love my school teachers. She's like, you really want to help me? I go, yeah, I want to help you. And so what ends up happening is she goes, you really want to help me? I go, yep, I want to help you. So she walks me to her backyard. She opens up the sliding glass door and she shows me these three bunnies that are Flemish bunnies. If you guys Google Flemish bunny, they're this big, like literally mm -hmm. the size of a four-year-old child. That's cool. Weird. Right. Yeah. In Arizona, right? It's hot, 122 sure. degrees. So I'm like, what do you want me to do about this? And she says, this is why I haven't sold my house. I, my granddaughter bought these for me. I've been taking care of them. I don't know what to do with them. I can't take them with me to Oregon where I'm retiring and I got to get rid of them. So long story short, I call my mom. My mom comes and picks up the, the Flemish bunnies, takes the Flemish bunnies and takes them to my mom's little farm. And Janie's like, wow, you solved my problem. This is amazing. Are you sure you can't pay me $170,000 for the house? I go, no, I can't. And she's thinking like any moment I'm going to try and manipulate her into a lower price, right? So I go home. Two weeks later, I get a call from Janie and she says, hey, I'm a school teacher. I always give my kids homework and I gave myself homework. Today's the day I got to make a decision to sell the house. And I, I'm, I decided I'm going to sell the house to you. I'm like, okay, but I can't pay you 165. I don't, I can't, she goes, I don't care what your price is. You're the only person. I met with 15 people before you and 15 people after you. Everybody came in with a clipboard and abuse, like, criticized my house. People told me they can't list the house unless I fix the windows. They told me I, it, basically this house should be boarded up. Mm. And she goes, I, whatever your offer is, I'll take it. And so I bought the house for 150,000. I, mm. I drove, I picked up Bethany, went up there, filled out the paperwork, bought the house for 150 grand. And I went and made 25 grand for basically three hours worth of work. Hmm. And I was like, how do I do this more? So Did you wholesale it? I wholesaled it to Bethany. Got it. Because I told Bethany, I was like, I don't want to be in a fix and flip. I got enough flips going on for other people. And so I, I assigned it to Bethany and I walked away with 25 grand. I'm surprised she, she met with that many people and not one person would offer her more than the 165 if Bethany's willing to pay 175 for it. 
Yeah. It's interesting. Bethany ended up selling the house for a little over um, 400 grand. And so I look at the deal too. And I was like, that's a great deal. Mm. So I made 25 grand. Bethany ended up netting like 50, 60,000 bucks on the house. Um, but typically like the people, the only people that are interfacing with a homeowner in that situation are not actual fix and flippers. This is the thing about that industry that nobody talks about. It's either a real estate agent or a wholesaler. People that are fixing and flipping are too busy fixing and flipping. They're not out marketing. They're talking to agents and they're talking to wholesalers to get their deals. Mm -hmm. So Bethany was the actual fix and flipper. She was willing to pay more money because she was direct to seller in that essentially in that situation, right? The 165 came from a wholesaler who was going to turn around and sell it for 175 to somebody else. I just didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand wholesale at the, time, at the time, even though I just did a wholesale deal. So here's what happens. I make 25 grand on that. And then I made, I got three more deals that month. In my first month, I made 50 grand in my first month. I'm like, holy crap. This is how I got into creative finance. So I go to the title company, I open escrow on all of these transactions. And there's a lady named Eileen Brown that I end up meeting. Eileen Brown has been in the in the industry for 48 years. Like the OG knows everything about everything. And she's like, where, where did you come from? Like you opened four contracts. I've never seen you before. Did you used to open your title stuff over at a different company? I was like, nope, these are my first four contracts. Like she's like in 30 days, like, who are you? And I told her about the bunny story. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is great. Like how, where are your leads coming from? And I go, I tell her and she goes, so you have more leads. I go, yeah, but I can't help them. She goes, what do you mean? What's going on with the leads? And I go, well, the other leads I have, I, I got 50 leads that month. I got four contracts. And I said, well, the other 44 people that I have that are leads don't have any equity. And some of them want too much money, right? As an agent, I'm sure you listed houses for people that are just like, mm -hmm. I want to sell my house for 300 grand over what retail is. And you're like, dude, what are you talking about? Right. And like, we just closed a $20 million apartment complex in Springfield, Illinois, a couple of weeks ago. I paid a million over retail, but I, did no money down seller finance on 265 units. This stuff, like Eileen Brown goes, go back to those people that want too much money or the people that don't have equity and bring those to me and I'll show you how to do subject to and seller finance. And I'm like, subject what? And sell it, what's seller finance? So she whiteboards all these things out for me, shows, shows me that I could go back to those leads that essentially were dead for me. And I got an extra four contracts that month just from creative finance. And I walked through with her and I found that the amount of bunnies I could find essentially like all these people had a different version of bunnies that were mm -hmm. keeping them from selling. Eileen taught me how to go find all the bunnies, help the people that don't have equity that are going to foreclosure, like Maricopa County. If you guys look up, I don't know how Vegas is, but Maricopa County where I'm at, three people get foreclosed on every day. And I look at those people I'm like, you're getting foreclosed on? Your credit's gonna be destroyed? Let me come in and fix your credit. Let me take over the existing debt. I'll turn it into a cash flowing property and I'll rebuild your credit. I didn't know that that existed at that moment until Eileen told me. I had to lay down on the ground. I was so blown away. I was like, how is this possible? She was like, well, I've been doing it for 48 years. I'm like, this is happening? She's like, yeah, I do two or three of them every single week. I was like, no way. So I did that for four or five months. And then I, I got my first due on sale clause called on me. I got, I called an attorney. The attorney's like, oh yeah, this is easy. I've ran into these. This is what we do. Boom, boom, boom. I'm like, okay. So what's the worst thing that could happen in these due on sale clause? That's it. Boom. And I lit the world on fire, bought 300 single family homes and 1500 multifamily doors, all creative finance. So what's your pitch when you walk in? to the homeowner. The, pi they, the pitch is all, pretty easy. Are they all behind on their payments? No, like the no, like the first, like one of the best seller finance stories I could tell you is I got so good at finding the bunnies for, for the wholesalers and agents that agents would call me and go, Hey, my client wants too much money. 
They don't need the money. They just want a really high purchase price. Again, seller finance is typically gain related and subject to is pain related, right? They have a painful situation. Seller finance is like, I just, they're greedy and justifiably it's their house, right? So I would get wholesalers that would call me and I got a wholesaler called me like four years in and this is just a good story that tells you how this is all structured and exactly how the flow is. Wholesaler's name is Tom. Tom calls me up. He goes, hey, I've got a property on 1906 South 78th place. Seller looked at Zillow and the Zillow price is 100 grand. She wants 110 grand for the property. This happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So as a wholesaler, what do you have to pay? Uh, what, as a wholesaler, what do you have to buy that for? 80, 75. No, way lower than that. Because the house isn't worth eight, 100 grand. It could be worth 100 grand if it was renovated, right? Yeah. So as a wholesaler, you would have to pay probably 40, 45. So Tom is like bewildered. He's like, how the freak am I going to buy pay your house for 100 grand? He meets me at a RIA, like a little real estate investor meetup. And he says, you're the creative finance guy, right? So if I ever have a weird lead, I can call you. I go, yep. And that became my business. I just went on other people's appointments that had impossible leads. So Tom calls me up and goes, hey, you want to come meet with D uh, Susan is her name. So I go to the appointment. I meet with Dale and Susan. We meet in their little house. They, had a, they have tenants in the house, but they told the tenants to leave for a little bit so I could come in and tour the property. Standing in the kitchen. And I said, uh, same thing I said to Janie Munson four years prior. I said, what's kept you from selling the house? She says, everybody keeps lowballing me. And I want to retire. We're sick of dealing with the tenants. What do we call those people? We call them tired landlords. They're done. Like they're not great operators. They're sick of switching out toilets and light fixtures and stuff. So um, she goes, I can just keep getting lowball. I go, let me guess. And this is my pitch. This is how I convert from a cash conversation to a creative conversation. I go, um, well, let me guess. You're probably getting offers around 40, maybe 50,000 bucks. And she's like, yeah, how, how did you know? I go, because if I was going to buy the house for cash, I would probably offer that same amount as well. And you see what I did there. I'm like, if I was going to offer that much, if I was going to offer cash, I'd offer that much too. And she's like, what do you mean? You're, you're not going to offer me cash? I go, no. If you were going to sell the house for 40, 50 grand, you would have sold it to somebody before I got here. You want more money. So I typically will match somebody's price as long as they give me terms. And she's like, what's terms? She has no idea what terms are. And so I, tell, I told her a story about my first transaction I ever did F1, was an F-150. As a contractor, I had an F-150 that had like 320,000 miles on it. So I went to Kelly Blue Book and I go, what's this truck worth? She says, or Kelly Blue Book says 5,000 bucks. So I go put it on Kelly Blue Book. What offers am I getting at 5,000 bucks? What, what price, Jack? Three. Yeah, getting 25, two and a half, 25, two and a, two and a half for a grand. Because you're, you're smart. But my, <laughs> my highest offer was 3,100 bucks. Sure. But that truck was being used for my construction company. So it made more, me more money being used. I, and I was willing to deal with the headaches it was giving me versus giving, letting somebody buy it for 3,100 bucks. So I tell Susan, just like I tell every seller the same, the same story when I was going on appointments. Now I got a team that does that. But I tell Susan, I go, I go on. Kelly Blue Book, I get people calling me, lowballing me, just like you're getting lowballed right now. And I decide to go get belligerent, just like you, Susan. Like, I go belligerent. I go, all right, I'm going to change my listing from five grand to 10 grand because then in that situation, if I do get lowballed, I'll get lowballed at five grand. But what happened is nobody even saw my post. Mm -hmm. Nobody looked at it. People laughed at it, probably didn't even message me. And um, a couple months later, didn't sell. My wife comes in and she goes, hey, sweetheart, like, is there any way you can get this truck out of the driveway? I got to like kind of move around it to get into the garage every time. I'm like, what do you want me to do? And she's like, why don't you take payments for the truck? 
I was like, oh my gosh, that's so freaking genius. So I literally put my truck back on Craigslist. I change one thing. I say F-150 will take payments. So I say, Susan, do you think I sold my truck for 10,000 bucks? She goes, probably. I go, I sold it for $12,500 with $1,000 down. And I go, that's what terms is. And she's like, I'll do that all day long. And she goes, okay, so you'll give me 110. I go, I will come up to 110 as long as you give me terms that make sense for me. And so that was a deal. I got $0 down, 0% interest. You can pull up the, the deed of trust that we created. Most of my seller finance deals are 0% seller finance because I'm matching their number. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are no down payments. Obviously that, that requires some um, credibility, right? They got to see my track history. They got to see who I am. But the average deal, I probably put 5% down. No credit check. I've never had my credit checked on a single deal. Nobody's ever asked for my job history. Nobody's ever, ever asked for my tax returns. Not a single time out of the last 700 transactions I've done creative finance. Not one time. Everyone goes through title. We get title insurance on every single one. Depending on the state, like Atlanta, I buy a lot, buy a lot of deals in Atlanta. Always goes through a closing attorney in Atlanta because they're an attorney state, not a title state. And that's what I've just focused on. I focused on if I don't have the, if I don't have money, how do I buy a piece of real estate? And I thought like the radio stuff, like no money down and all that kind of stupid crap. Yeah. I was like, dude, just freaking scam artists out here as a blue collar contractor. I just was like, I heard it on the radio as I'm cruising around. And I'm like, all of that is, fa is fake, but I can tell you, you can look up at any address. You can look at this address. By the time you guys list this, I'll be the owner of this property. Or by the time you guys put this podcast up, this house on 8110 Cerro Medina, San Antonio, Texas, I get it gets brought to me today, I will be the owner tomorrow in one day. That's how fast creative finance is. I don't have to go through credit checks. I don't have to go through appraisals. I don't have to go through inspections. I will become the owner of this property today. That one lady, how long of a term do you get? Um, oh, with her? Yeah. That one is 20, 20 years, 0% interest. In fairness, she would have been better off just taking the 50 and investing it. Yeah, but we're not talking about Graham Steffens of the world, right? We're talking sure. about people that can't even handle one, um, they can't even handle one rental, mm -hmm. right, at all. So these are tired landlords. It's, I bought a 43 unit last year, a 30 unit, a 30 unit, a 50 unit, 109 unit, 138 unit, and a 256 unit, all the exact same way. Hmm. All the exact same way. We had one, we were negotiating a 300 unit on like really close to the strip. It was a zero down, 0% seller finance deal too. Um, but I, we're going to have to follow up with that one. How much is that one? Um, that one's like 50 mil. Oh, wow. Yeah. My biggest deal I closed last year was a $109 million deal in, in um, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. Do you partner with people on that? I used to when I was brand new, sure. right? So what I would do is I would go to people like Graham Stephan who have a fancy Patek watch and I go, hey man, you obviously have money. Can you be my private money lender? In the very beginning, I didn't have the credibility to entice them to be my private money lenders. I had to entice them to be my equity partner. Mm -hmm. So I would do that. They'd come in with the down payment and the closing costs and maybe the furniture cost to get the Airbnb up and going if that was my strategy. But then I got credibility. I learned how to raise money that I didn't have to give away equity. So I haven't given away equity on a real estate deal in probably five years. And what rate are you getting for uh, private money? So on my flips, I get 10%, no points on my long-term um, stuff where I go, all right, I'm buying it like this sub two deal. Let's, let's give this as an example. If I was brand new, what I would do is my total cost to get this deal. Um, the guy who's bringing it to me, it's an assignment. So this is cool. You can assign these sub two deals. Okay. So, uh, he'll get paid 10 grand as an assignment fee. The closing costs will be three grand. And then I'll probably spend five grand cleaning up the property and getting, getting it rented out. So I'll be into it. Let's say 20 grand. If I'm brand new, 
this is what's cool about creative finance too. It, if you were a real estate agent and somebody comes to you, Graham, and says, I want to buy an investment property tomorrow, guess what they have to have? Not only do they have to have good credit, job history, tax returns, and everything under the sun the loan officer is going to ask for, and then they're going to ask for more two weeks later. Then they're going to ask for more two weeks later. You've been through this a bunch of times. Like, dude, how much more information do you need? Just get the freaking loan done. The worst part about that is that the down payment has to come from their own sources. In creative finance, I can get a private money lender to bring that money in. Nobody's gonna, nobody cares where sure. my down payment came from, right? So somebody will come in with that 20 grand and I'll pay them 12% interest and then I'll utilize the cash flow to pay them off for probably the first year, maybe two years. So I give them 12% interest on their 20 grand. Hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. So how many like doors or houses do you have now? Close to 1,800. How do you manage all that? So I have a team. I have a, I have a Molly. We, everybody that knows me knows Molly. Yeah. Molly's my COO. And then I've got an asset manager and then I got a team. But when I first started, it was you, when you, when you get up to like 20 rentals, you can pr primarily manage that yourself, like you and maybe your spouse. And it gets to a point, I think you're at 10 that you go, dude, this is like starting to become a job and you outsource that to a property management company. So I have property management companies that we outsource it to. I've never started a property management company. It was never something I wanted to do. And so I have property management companies like in North Carolina, I have a lot of assets, Florida, Texas, um, Atlanta specifically, um, Nevada, I have a bunch of properties here and Arizona. So I have property management companies there and then I have an asset manager that manages them and then I have a COO that manages her. Got it. Does that make sense? And what do you look for? Is it cash flow or do you go for appreciation? I don't care about appreciation. I tell people all the time that um, equity comes, equity goes, but the cash always flows. So like, look what happened in la this last year. The, the, what happened was when I first started, I was like, how do I get cash flow? And then when I understood the tax benefits of buying real estate, I actually care more about the depreciation, right? There's a lot of people that you hang out with. They're all these rich people that get these big swaths of money. And these guys are giving away 40, 50% of their income to the IRS. I'm not paying any, in, any of my income. I don't pay any income tax. I pay consumption tax and employee, employee tax and property tax and all that stuff. But my money that I make, I don't pay any income on it because I use real estate to offset that. So the main thing I care about is this a property that will cash flow, number one. And number two, I care about the debt that comes with it. And then number three, I care that it's going to give me the tax benefits that I need to pay no tax, pay zero dollars in tax. Hmm. What do you think of the current market right now? It's unbelievable for me. Think about it. All these people, the, the, it's like the golden age of creative finance because people went out in 2019 to 20, 21 and 22, and they obtained all these two, three and 4% interest rate loans. Now the market ch change and shifts and people that are in foreclosure right now, or people that are going through a job change or whatever it is, this is what's happening. If let's say I buy a property that is cash flowing 300 bucks and all of a sudden my rent rates come down, what do I do with that asset? One, I either A, I don't cash flow on it, which is not a, that's not a newbie strategy. That's a strategy I can withstand. Uh -huh. Or B, I divert and do a different exit strategy. I go midterm, I do short term, I do sober living, I do something along those lines and I amplify my cash flow. Then why isn't the strategy just doing that from the beginning? Like just doing all sober living, all. For me? Yeah. Because like if that's your alternative to make more money, wouldn't mm -hmm. you just start with that? So I started with Airbnb. This is a great question. Yeah. So I started with Airbnb because I thought, okay, a lot more cash flow. This is super exciting. I'm going to go this route. I think Airbnb is so overhyped. It's ridiculous. So I get in, I get up to 75 Airbnbs and then regulation starts setting in in Atlanta. 
And I'm like, dude, I've got 15 Airbnbs in Atlanta. Now the regulations are coming in. You have to have a license there now, and you can only have one prop property per license. I have 15 properties. So I didn't know. I had to learn through my mistakes. And so my properties in Atlanta, I kept them all, but I then diverted them to sober living. You have to kind of get educated along the way. I didn't know that from the beginning. I mean, on my first deal with Janie, I didn't even know how to fill out a contract, right? You got to figure these things out along the way. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with like real estate agents. Agents don't learn how to comp a, deal, a, comp a house in real estate school. They got to learn that out, on, out in the field. It's funny, most agents are going and doing a listing appointment and listing their first house before they even know how to value a property, right? They're listening to their broker. They're listening to somebody else. So you kind of have to have guidance along the way to, to, to navigate the waters, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So why are you comfortable sharing all this information? It sounds like you kind of figured out the code. Bro, and I don't have to look for deals when I teach people how to do this. Like these deals are coming to me from other people that I taught. I go, go put this on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Somebody figures out how to do it. They sell, sell me the deal. Last year we bought. Oh, they sell you the deals. And they assign them to me. But, They're but doing they, all the work. Got it. But very yeah. rarely do people actually approach you directly now. What? So homeowners? Yeah. Well, homeowners stopped. I, I stopped doing postcards and billboards and all that kind of stuff about six years ago. And what we did is we started doing cold calling a couple, like probably four years ago. Did you hire people for that? Yeah, we, we use a company called startvirtual.com. That's like, they're in the Philippines. They do the cold calling and the texting and they do the outreach. But that's only like 30% of my deal flow. 70% of my deal flow right now comes from people that I taught, whether on YouTube or at Aria or something else, they go out. They go get the contract and they bring it to me and Molly and we gobble them up. And when did that start actually taking a significant amount? Probably four years. Four years ago? Four years ago, yeah. I like right now I could turn off all lead generation and just sit here and I turn down 80 or 90% of the deals that get sent to me. My whole inbox is, is flooded with these all over the country. And you look at them personally or is there some Molly does. first filter? Molly does for the per first part, for the most part. So like Jimmy Al is the first guy I ever taught how to do a sub two deal two and a half, three years ago. I was like, wow, okay. If I could teach people how to do this, I don't have to go out and prospect anymore, right? It's kind of like being a broker. It's like, I go teach agents how to go do listings and I don't have to go do listings anymore. So that's what I did. I taught Jimmy Al was the first guy and here he is now three years later, still selling me deals. And he's making good money. Yeah. I make 10 grand on the, he, he didn't have to do anything on this. Do you know what's funny about this? This is, this is how good Jimmy is. Jimmy didn't even find that deal. Jimmy taught, learned what I taught him, went to a local RIA, taught like 13 or 14 real estate agents to go, hey, if there's expired listings or there's listings that are on the market for 100 days and they're not selling, which is massive right now, days on market have gone mm -hmm. crazy. So if you want to go get a deal right now, you and I could go get a sub two deal in Vegas in four minutes. Like that's how easy this is. So Jimmy teaches these agents, go, he goes, hey, go to expired listings or go to other agents that can't sell their listings. I'm a buyer. So now he's got agents bringing him deals and then he assigns those to me. So he's not even the one doing the prospecting anymore. Jeez. It's crazy. So that he sent this to me at 437. We started at five. Like this is 23 minutes before I sat down. Like this is all day. Mm -hmm. Now the only people that are emailing me are people that I, I taught directly right. three years ago. Now what's happened is it's kind of compounded and my YouTube channel is at like 150,000 subscribers now. So, you know, we get 5 million views a month. A lot of people learn from like, I'm buying a golf cart with creative finance. I bought a boat with creative finance. I sold my truck on creative finance. I bought a Kia on creative finance. Isn't some of that more work than it's worth? Oh, I mean, like buying a golf cart on hundred percent sounds like, but for some, like, like, here's an interesting thing that that was a complete waste of my time as an individual. Think about this. So I get a camera guy. He comes in, he starts working for me and he goes, Oh man, I'm working for the sub two guy. 
I'm this, I'm working for, everybody knows me as the sub two yeah. guy, right? And I go, and my other videographer, Eric is standing there and he goes, dude, you don't even know what sub two means. And I, and my new videographer, his name's Jose goes, yeah, okay, well show me, just show me. So I go to the whiteboard and I start writing it out. I was like, wait, hold on. What would make sense to a camera guy? So what I do is I go to Craigslist and I sit down on my desk, like literally 10 feet away and I go, Jose, what camera, what camera do you want more than anything? He goes, I want the a7S III. I want the aperture this. I want the 50 blah, blah. He's saying all the stuff he wants. Mm -hmm. So I go on Craigslist, can't find it in Arizona. I go on Craigslist in LA and I go, oh, cool. There's a guy selling an a7S III with these three lenses. He doesn't have a light with it, but it's all good. And I go, would you want me to buy this? He goes, yes. I go, cool. So the package is being sold, I think for 4,500 bucks. Okay. And I call the guy up right there. This is all recorded. We put this on the YouTube channel. And Eric's sitting here recording the whole thing. Obviously, Eric's a smart guy. I call the guy on Craigslist and I go, hey, I'll pay you uh, five grand for your bundle. And the guy goes, what are you talking about five grand? I got it listed for 4,500, you idiot. And I go, well, it's because I'm going to ask you for a favor. And he says, well, okay, what? And I go, it's going to be a little bit weird, but I'm a wedding photographer, which I'm not, but Jose is on the weekends. I'm a wedding photographer. I don't have the money to buy the camera equipment. I know I can make more money if I had that camera equipment. Would you let me buy that camera equipment, put an agreement together and make you payments every time I go make money on a wedding? And the guy goes, yeah, you'll pay me five grand. No problem. So we give him 500 bucks down. Jose goes out, buys, gets the camera equipment and goes out and starts doing stuff on the weekends. Is it more work? For me to That's do that, a lot yes. Of trust for the seller though, because I of feel like course. it's a camera. But it's equipment. the same I mean, thing the guy with could buying. Just bolt off and like. Of course, but it's the same thing with when you buy a car. The bank is trusting you, but what collateral do they have, right? What how and usually they're verifying with your credit, so they have true. that kind of hanging true. over yeah. or a down payment, right? Sometimes. Yeah, right. So we get we give him five hundred bucks. It's it's not as easy when you go watch the conversation with the guy. Mm. It's not as easy as like, hey, I'll give you five, five grand. Yeah. Well, I guess it's easier to track down the car and repossess it than it would yeah. be finding some, some guy's camera. Right. So, but I'm just telling you, yeah. there's nothing you can't do with creative finance. Sure. And what I, the reason why I do the golf cart stuff, the reason why I do the truck and the Kia and the watches and stuff on creative finance is just to show people that you can literally buy anything with creative finance. And then when you really understand like the history of all these companies like DuPont and all these big companies that are the biggest, richest families in the, in the country, they all built their fortunes off seller finance and creative finance. Every single one of them. Walmart uses creative finance in everything that they do. And so when you start understanding how simple it is, it seems complicated because the terminology is there. But name something you want. You want a house? I'll go get you a house with no credit check. I'll get you, I'll get you a house right now with 3.25% interest amidst everybody else out there in the country is going, I can't get a house. I can't get a house because interest rates are at 7.5. I'm like, what are you guys? This is the greatest time in history for me. I would do that. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Let's go. I guess it's such a small subsection, though. It's not. Like, because there's well, 600, for any, for any home that's listed, 600,000 houses right now that agent, Mr. Cooper yeah, is saying, guess, take these mortgages off I our guess plate. Anything that's listed right now, I know any agent would just scoff at that. And no, yeah. I'm not dealing with that. Anytime, so I, finding, hear, anytime yeah. I hear that from an agent, I'll, I'm talking to all agents mm -hmm. out there. All you're telling me as a real estate investor is that you are inexperienced and you didn't actually learn real estate. I know if I came to that when I was at Coldwell Banker and brought any sort of deal, they would immediately say, nope, we're not getting involved too much. It's because your broker us. is a listing centric broker. If you go to a broker who is dealing with agents who are out there investing and flipping and building stuff, they'd be like a hundred percent. I call it the bank teller paradox. Okay. It's like you go to a bank teller and they say, sorry, we have to put your check on hold for seven days because it's bank policy. 
And you're like, what are you talking about? So you take your check and you go to your branch that they know you and they deposit it and they release the money right now. Have you ever had that happen to you? Okay, you guys, I've, I've ran big construction companies, so it's happened to me a hundred times. I've learned, same thing with title companies. I go to a title company and they go, what's a, what's seller finance? They don't, there's agents that don't even know what seller finance is. And you go, go on landwatch.com right now. There's 12,000 listings on, on landwatch.com just on seller finance, 12,000. Go on Vegas's MLS right now, 200 listings right now on seller finance, subject to and seller finance, just because agents don't know it. Now, here's the thing, I'll argue with agents. The average agent makes less than $40,000 a year. What am I taking their advice for? Uh -huh. The average agent, 90 plus percent of them don't even make a full-time living as an agent. So the last person I'm taking real estate advice from is an agent, unless they are a top earner. And when I talk to a type, top earner agent, they go, yeah, we, we can figure this out. So the strategy is you go to right now, go to the MLS, filter down to listings that are over a hundred days. And you tell the, the agent, Hey, I'm, I am willing to pay full price. Would your seller be willing to let me take over payments? Probably 50% of the time, the agent's not going to know what you're talking about. So what you do is you follow up. Guess what you do again? You follow up again the next week. You know this when you did listings, you don't land every listing you get. Just like I don't call, I don't call an agent or call a homeowner that's in foreclosure and they pick up the phone and I get the deal immediately. 70% mm -hmm. of our deals come from 13 follow-ups. That was the most important thing that I learned in real estate was 70% of my deals come from 13 follow-ups. So somebody's like, I'm not ready or I'm not this or I'm not that. Great, no problem. I'll follow up in two weeks or I'll follow up in 30 days or whatever it is. You want a rental property? Yes. Okay. Where do you want a rental property? Here in Las Vegas. Easy. Or, I mean, I would also take somewhere in the Midwest. Okay. Midwest is too easy. We're what we're part of Midwest. Where do you want to go? Uh, Mississippi. Mississippi is very easy. Okay. If I got you a rental property, zero down, let's say under three or under 4% interest, you would want to manage that property or would you want to partner with somebody that would manage it for you? Uh, I mean, I would probably prefer to partner with someone. So okay. I just focus on this podcast. Okay. I will find you a property in less than 30 days that will not require your credit. It will not require money out of your pocket. Nobody will ask for your tax history, your job history, nothing. And you will go through a title company, get title insurance in less than 30 days. What's Jack's if, obligation? If you did that, mm -hmm. I would report on it here on the Ice Coffee Hour. But, if you did go, guys, go to my every single address I buy. It's all reported on public What's record. What's Jack's obligation, though? So this is the challenge, right? So... If you want to be somebody that jumps into the industry, you got to make a decision. There's only three ways to make money. There's three ways to make money as a real estate investor. Only three. Wholesale, fix and flip, or buy and hold. I don't know that I take you as a buy and hold guy yet, unless it's in your backyard. I do plan on buying and holding. I get, I get that. So that's why I'm saying, like, if you live in Vegas, why not buy a, a one in Vegas? Because it makes people feel more comfortable. That is ideal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So if you want a Vegas deal, I'll get you a Vegas deal. Easy. Right, Ryan Pineda, you guys know Ryan Pineda, he's doing these deals as well. Him and his team have my team do their transaction coordination. People in the real estate industry are really, really doing it. It's just the agents are not educated at school and they're not educated by their brokers. So what happens is where else do you get education if you're an agent? That's it. But Jack's buying this property, what does Jack do? Okay, so they're- going Yeah, I feel like you'd just be throwing nothing. me a bone at that point. I feel like I need a, you know. What, what, yeah, in a situation like that, like what's, Jack doing every month. You can't just do no work, nothing, and just get a check for. No, you would have to hire a property management company. I'll refer you one. Um, there might be costs to get into the property, but I, I could refer you a, a partner. There's, we have a lot of, a lot of people here in Vegas. Like uh, Kevin Cho would be a really good fit for you. He's a young guy, lives here in Vegas. Kevin Cho comes in as a private money lender in the deal or partner. 
you're 50 50 with him. He bring, you bring the deal. I'll bring the deal. You bring the deal. He brings the money. You guys are 50 50 partners. You guys hire a property management company. You sit back and get checks. And then once a year, you get, you got to get a report from your, your, uh, property management company says, Hey, Jack, just so you know, tenants leaving, what do you want to do? Do you want to raise the rates? We suggest you do because blah, 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 blah. You'll still have to have involvement. You probably have an hour a month of involvement and in looking at emails and stuff like that. And then the property management company will call you and go, Hey, we need a repair request. We need 200, $200 more fixed on this thing. Your tenant punched a hole in the wall, whatever you'll have. You'll still have to have involvement. Are you saying this is just a hypothetical situation? No, bro. I'm actual, Cause I'm, I would actually do this. I, mean, I don't know why you guy just take the deal for himself. Why, why would he put me or Kevin, uh, Kevin, why, why is Graham so skeptical all the time? Because I'm thinking I wouldn't do, I wouldn't want to partner with anybody. Well, you I'm wouldn't, thinking, but you would, right? In the beginning on your first deal? 100%. I also have, uh, I have money. I could pitch it towards but, the deal. But why do. would you do it with money if you want to learn how to do it without money? <laughs> You're, that's, a, that's a good point. You know, maybe I'm just too easy to convince, which is great. Graham and I have an amazing di like dichotomy. I love it. I am one way in so many things and he's the exact I, here, Here's what way. I think. I think... <laughs> I think that I'm sold. I think one of the <laughs> <all> my money. <laughs> I think one of the smartest people on the planet is Dave Ramsey. But I think one thing I disagree with him on is the debt is debt conversation. Everybody I know that's worth a lot of money. Let's take Dave Ramsey's ability to sell courses and sell all his back end products out. Mm -hmm. How does Dave Ramsey buy property? He says he buys property cash, but right. where does that cash come from? It comes from his influence. And it, when you're talking about your audience, your audience doesn't have influence like that. So how does your audience go out and, and buy real estate? They have to use leverage. Leverage is powerful and everybody wealthy uses leverage. I'll say it's safe to say his wealth is from a very strong income. And hundred percent, of course, supported yes. by lucrative investments. Of course. Most, and yes, but mostly by a very strong income. Right, but his, his rhetoric of don't ever incur debt actually puts people <laughs> well, let's incur debt, but 15 year mortgages. Yeah. I believe in that. Yeah, I believe, I believe in like... all that. So I, I think he appeals to the lizard brain human beings, the people that live in fear versus the people that are, want to be the one or the 3% and say, I want to make half a million dollars more a year. Those people need to learn how to acquire skills, not learn how to save more money. And we all, we all know you're not going to, you're not going to live a good life by tr trying to figure out how to not buy Starbucks. Now, that's one thing that does help by uh, scaling back at Starbucks. I don't so. buy Starbucks. I, I only coffee. buy, I only, I only use yeah. your coffee. So here's a good question. Mm -hmm. Why would I, why do I not use my own money? Why do you not use your own money? Yeah. Because, because you could use it on other things. I mean, there you go. No so think about it. So if I can get somebody else to come in at 10%, right. Or even be an equity partner. So I don't have a payment to them and it's not really a loan. It's them being a partner but I could use my cash on wholesale or fix and flip or my cash flow, And I could go buy other businesses like, um, title companies that have a, like you go buy a title company for 200,000 bucks. You're making 800 grand in your first year. It's crazy. So why wouldn't I just go buy more title companies? My return on my investment is way more than 10%. So my question is why would I ever put money into a flip? I don't flip on the TV show, the A and E TV show that we're on. Um, all those houses, we don't use any of our own money. Nothing, zero, zilch, nothing. Why would I use my own money for real estate when there's all, real estate is such a secure investment because it's solid, it's tangible, you can put a lien on the property. It's easy to put money, to go get money. So why would you ever use your own money? I'm just curious, because I do understand where Graham's skepticism is coming. Of course. And it's like, for me, I- Actually, I, no, I don't. I don't know I, where the skepticism but, but comes from. But here's the thing, I think if you understood the exact reason for the skepticism, you probably would understand. So yeah. this guy, Kevin, right? Why would he partner with me when he could just be doing this on his own? Or why would you just not take this deal yourself? 
Like, what is the benefit of my presence? You got that's an interesting thing. You guys, you you guys don't know me too well, so you don't know like my community and how strong we are. And like, you go, if I show up right now, if I go, hey guys, we're gonna go to a, a ice cream thing before I go to the airport. I have three hundred people show up. We have a go giver network. Everybody's always helping each other out. It is absolutely insane. People help each other to help each other out first and foremost. And collaboration over competition is way more powerful. So the other thing is it's fun. Yeah, but this okay. is a business relationship. No, I, with, I actually air more. I know this yeah. obviously it's benefiting me, so it would make sense that I would air more on your side. But yeah. I would say just as a philosophical standpoint, I do air more on your side. I do love the buddy stuff, the, yeah. the friendship stuff, where it doesn't necessarily have to be very transactional. I've said this to Graham before in the past. One point of contention he and I have yeah. is he's a very much more transactional type person. Yeah, and you need, you, need that, you need that in a good balance, right? Like a, good, a good marriage in both business and, and relationship has, yeah. has that perfect balance for sure. But I, for me, I'm on the more aggressive side. My partner, so all my partners, I'm a visionary. So I'm more aggressive on let's go buy more. Let's go make, raise more money. But I have a counterbalance in all my businesses too. I have operators, right? I have nine businesses that I have. And each one of those businesses has an operator partner that is a gram. I need grams that are like, hold on, hold on. We bought 40 properties last month. Let's not buy properties for three more months. Let's stabilize these before you go buy another one. And I'm like, but we, there's deals out there. So right now I'm turning down deals because you can't stabilize a thousand properties in one month. You figure out a good pipeline and then you have to say no to stuff. And when you say no to stuff, guess what you do? You just say, that's not a good deal. No, because you have to understand that every one of these deals that you're saying no to has bunnies in each one of these stories. There's a lady that's retiring. There's somebody in foreclosure. There's somebody in a bad situation. It's very unlike traditional real estate, the off market world. The traditional real estate world is like, I'm going to call an agent. But there's a whole subset, massive amount, massive, massive amount. There's over 400,000 transactions going on every single month that are off market deals, both either people, we won't get into that. It's a whole nother conversation that nobody even sees that is a real estate agent. So real estate agents have their blinders on and they go, well, where are all these deals? I'm like, not paying you commission. That's where they are. They're paying me. Can you share with so many units what your monthly take home is after paying off all the debt, like what's the net profit every month? Uh, so after payrolls like Molly, yeah. Heidi, all that kind of stuff, right. uh, you're probably double six figures, so close to 200,000. A month. Yeah, yeah. And what does that equate to in terms of a dollar amount of real estate? Um, so the total amount of money, the total amount of real estate that we own is somewhere around 300 million. But again- Yeah, but in, a lot of uh, those are paying down. A lot of the, a lot of the money that's coming in is not cash flow to me. A lot of that money is that's coming in is paying down the debt, right? Uh -huh. Because I have payments I'm paying to sellers. Uh -huh. Now we're bringing in a lot of money, but those payments that come in, I'm then paying my sellers who are my bank, right? And then my net cash flow is completely different than what I actually bring For in. Sure. Right. Do you do commercial at all? Or you stay away from that? You I don't know do commercial it. very well. So I have okay. right now I have a deal in Carson City, uh -huh. um, which is near Reno, I think. Uh -huh. So I have a deal in Carson City that is a um, seller finance storage unit. And I'm like, okay, I could do that. I don't have anything in Carson City. That's a problem is that determining and turning down why I won't buy in certain areas. Right now I'm at a point where I have enough real estate in 15 different markets that if it comes to me outside of that market, I'm just wholesaling it. Mm -hmm. But I have a storage unit that came to me this morning, Carson City, and I go, oh, it's seller finance, 10% down, seller finance, storage unit. I don't really have tenants and I'm dealing with like toilets and trash and all that kind of stuff. I will probably buy that deal but it will be my first storage unit deal. And what's the return on that? Net income per year, 60,000. 
So after you pay the seller off, after you pay the taxes and insurance, the net income would be $60,000 is what he's, what he's equating. So, I mean, one storage unit on seller finance is 60 grand a month or 60 grand a year. For most people, they could probably have their wife or themselves probably quit their job and just go full-time real estate with that 60 grand. That's on one deal. Yeah. Now, does that include management? On that? Um, yeah, 8% management on that is what he assumes in his PNL. yeah. Okay. Is that realistic for a storage center? I think so. Doesn't it, don't they usually require that someone like be on site? I think it's a smaller I, yeah. one. So okay. the ones that are bigger and they have like RV storage and stuff yeah. like that. I don't know. It sounds like I know a lot, but I actually don't know a lot. I know enough about RV storage facilities because as a contractor, I used to build them for people, but I didn't, I've never owned one. So I know what happens. I know the mom and pop ones that are like a hundred units or smaller typically don't have an on-site manager. The ones that have more than that do, or the ones that have RV storage where somebody has to pull in and back in. A lot of times they need somebody to make sure people aren't backing into people's boats and stuff yeah. like that. But I, I just have stayed in my lane between, I stayed in my lane for a long time on single family. I was afraid of multifamily. But now that I understand multifamily, I'm like, wow, this is actually a lot easier than single family once you have the credibility and the resources to manage the properties. Why do you invest in the areas that you do? Uh, Part part of the reasons I did is because that's where my deals were coming from. Okay. Like Atlanta, I, the first deal I bought in Atlanta, I was, I flew out there and I was speaking and somebody that I was speaking in the audience was like, I have a deal. So I left, I went and bought, I went to the property, go, okay, I'll buy the deal. And now that I own a property in Atlanta, and I knew that it's an appreciating market, I started buying more deals in Atlanta. So wherever I got a deal in my first year or two years, and I kind of set these strongholds, like politically, I wanted to be in areas that were landlord friendly, and I wanted to be in areas that had a population growth of at least 0.08% a year, Mm -hmm. sorry, 0.8%, so just under 1% a year. And if they had population growth and good politics, I'll buy there. Now I'm at a point where I don't need more markets. I just want more properties in those markets. So I say no to everything else. Got it. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, I was doing the numbers in my head. So if you, let's say the longest loans that you have on all, any of your properties is, yeah. is 50 years, then wouldn't that make that after 50 years has lapsed and you don't change anything, you'd have $300 million, right? Technically in cash. Way more than that. Well, because let's say it was the assets, like a, right? Well, well sure. Let's say Assuming they don't 0% appreciation. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah 300 million, 300 million, but then you're making $200,000 a month, which is two, two and a half million dollars a year. About mm-hmm. if you times that by, by 50, that is not 300 million. So you're just, a, you're going to continue selling onto the properties early, assuming that. I don't think I, what I'll probably do. And I'm, I'm newer, right? I'm, I'm in the, I'm in this part of the business less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the next 10 years looks like. And I know that when you have kids, things change. When you get married, things change. When you buy, when you decide, hey, I'm 40 years old, things change, right? So when you were, before you moved to Vegas, you lived a different lifestyle than you live today. You made different decisions than you did today. I don't know what tomorrow holds. All I know right now is that I want to continue to um, control and own more real estate. And my goal now is I look at my C-suite. So my C-suite, like CFO, CEO, COO, all the, all the people that are on my team, I look at them and I go, how do I make you guys worth $20 million? And so I have to turn around and buy enough real estate that justifies them becoming worth that. That's my goal now. And sometimes you're going to switch out assets. Like we had a 20 unit deal that we bought a couple of years ago that we went through the inspection, everything was fine. And then a couple of years later, we had a sewage backup and we found out that like five years prior, they basically they didn't literally duct tape, but they basically duct taped the sewer back together. We didn't catch it. And we had to go in and dump $300,000 into the property. And I was like, 
what else do I not, do we not know about this property? And I offloaded the property, I sold it. So in those situations, I'll offload a property, but now I've got a 1031 exchange that cash that I have in that property into another asset. So I prefer not to be in that situation, right? You probably as an agent, you ran into investors that would go, I'm selling this asset, but now I have a timeline. I have to roll that money into another asset or else I get hit with taxes. Mm -hmm. That's another great thing about creative finance. Creative finance, you can do a delayed 1031 exchange. The seller, let's say a seller sells the property to me, his payments that I paid to him can actually be a 1031 exchange over 30 years. Isn't that freaking cool? How is that? How does that work? It has to go through a, 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 an exchange intermediary. So a licensed person that does the 1031 stuff and it bypasses all the regulation for the 1031 in a cash transaction. In a creative transaction, the 1031 can be delayed over whatever, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. But Where then that would mean he would eventually have to buy. Yeah. Yeah, he would have, but, he would have to do something wait, with so it. So you're saying, let's just say, I sell a building for $10 million mm -hmm. and your agreement is I'll pay you a million dollars a year for 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So that million dollars a year, what goes into an account? No, it goes, it goes, he, he does have to identify an asset. Okay. So it has to go towards an asset. He, sure. he can't just receive the money. It has to go to an asset he's identified, but those payments can be justified towards his 1031 even two years, three years, four years, five years down the road. Does that make sense? Yes. So the just not closing on that second property. He's already closed on it. Okay. He just had to go and get debt on it. Does that make sense? Sure. So he goes and gets a loan. He does whatever. But my payments to him can be identified as payments towards that property. That's where that money goes. And that will satisfy the 1031. Okay. So he still, he still identifies the property the same way you would identify a property in a regular 1031. But he doesn't have to have all the money to put into that deal. As of today, he okay. can say, Hey, 1031 intermediary, the person that's licensed to do all this stuff, this, these payments are going to come to me for the next 20, 30 years or whatever it is. I want those payments to be attributed to this property that I've already identified. Sure. Okay. Yeah. There's all sorts of really cool things you can do. Okay. So where's your thought in terms of where the market's going over the next few years? So I told everybody wholesalers don't want to hear this, but I have friends that are wholesalers and in January I said, guys, we're going to be, we're going to have a bumpy ride. And people are going to get fired. People are going to get laid off. People that are loan officers and you guys are in the mortgage industry. And anybody in the mortgage industry is going to get hammered. If you're a real estate agent, your days on market are in a 5X. And people didn't want to hear that because they don't understand interest rates and how they actually affect the market. They're, no, there's so much demand. There's so much demand. Actually, you and I talked about this. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, but like interest rates, dude, like it's going to impact. People's affordability is, is a big deal. So I predicted last year that we were going to lose 30%. We didn't. I thought we were going to lose way more. I thought it was going to be way worse than it was. Mm -hmm. um, I think interest rates are going to go up two more times this year. The Fed has specifically said we are not lowering r rates until we're at this point. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're going to have another decline of probably 12 to 15% nationwide, and then hopefully it stabilizes in 2024. Got it. Are there any areas that you think that you would stay away from? I stay for, as So if I'm a wholesaler, I can wholesale anywhere. Sure. If I'm an agent, I can be an agent anywhere. If I'm fixing and flipping, I can fix and flip anywhere. If I'm buying and holding, I stay away from states that don't like landlords. Um, but I also think that there's certain areas that are going to get hit way harder than anywhere else. And those are typically the tertiary markets, like the, the smaller markets, like a Corpus Christi is going to get hard, hit harder way more than a Dallas or mm -hmm. Reno is going to get hard, hit harder way more than a Vegas is right. Vegas has way more demand here. Now Reno has like Tesla and a bunch of stuff up there, but it doesn't justify not getting hit. Tesla has been there long enough. It's not like they have a bunch of jobs moving in Arizona. We have 
Rivian and these big companies moving in and investing billions and billions and Intel is tripling their size in Arizona. I think Arizona actually will be somewhat insulated from the economic hit, but I don't think we're going to have a meltdown. I think that there is enough demand. I think the Fed has actually done a good job. Um, what do I know at the end of the day, other than yeah. I'm, I'm happy because now there's a lot of people just giving me their mortgages because they're underwater and that's what I want. I want more, more mortgages, right? Mm. Or I want to assign more mortgages because think about this too. You have friends that are loan officers. You, I don't know if you, do you guys ever have loan officers on here? No. Okay. They're too boring, I guess. I don't know. So I was a loan officer and um, for a couple of years and I learned that 50% of people that apply for a mortgage get declined, 50%. So what's cool about creative finance is that I can assign, I can go get a mortgage from somebody else like that house I showed you in Texas city. Yeah. I, for a moment I was like, should I turn into a, should I turn into a midterm rental or should I assign it to an end buyer? I don't have to assign a deal to a fix and flipper. I can assign a deal to an end buyer. Think about all the end buyers out there that are like, I can't buy a house right now. So for me, this is like the golden age of creative finance. I think for the next 24 months, I'll have a heyday and I, I, I'm buying more properties than I can even handle. So how much, how much debt do you technically have then? Uh, probably 250, 255 million, something like that. Does that not stress you out? At all. Look at, I mean, look I at mean, anybody with wealth. Name, name any company that has anybody that you've had on the podcast actually has real wealth. Not like I'm worth a couple million bucks. Sure. They all have debt. That is a powerful thing. Powerful thing. And if my average interest rate is at three, maybe three and a half percent. I think maybe Hormozy has been the only person without debt. He's going to yeah, buy but that, that was just cash. the stress. It wasn't even like a financial decision. I don't think he's mm -hmm. debt opposed. He was just like, oh. right. You do look like you sleep very well at night. <laughs> I do. Very, sleep very well. well. At least rested. you like hydrate or yeah. something. You don't even need an aura ring to I, track I'm, your sleep like we tell, do. Tell, okay, yeah. tell me about this aura ring. So, so I've got. Check this out. So I've got yeah. this ring. Yeah. I've obviously been married a long time, but yeah. this ring creates a callus on my finger. You can see it. Oh, yeah. And so somebody showed me the aura ring the other day. I was like, dude, those are pretty dope. So you're thinking about replacing your wedding ring with an aura ring? Yeah. I would, I would it's a little bulky. It. Yeah. It's I a mean, it, bulky, it is a little but... bit bulky. I mean, I wear it every single day. You basically will not catch me not wearing this, but yeah, it just measures the basically the amount of sleep that you get. A okay. So other... you measure yeah. your sleep. What, how does that help you? Like, what do you do with that data? Do you look at it and well, go, you Oh, I didn't drink enough the water data to, in, to improve your sleep because it's hard to know exactly how well you're sleeping without actually seeing it on a sheet. Okay. Like you can feel well rested, but I also think like the next day, a lot of that's in your head. Right. So like if you tell yourself, yes. oh, I slept yeah, really yeah. well, you're going to have a lot of energy. Or if you tell yourself like, oh, I think I had a sleepless night, but you don't really know because you're kind of in and out of sleep, you're going to have a bad performance. I think day. that's been the biggest thing for me is a lot of the time it'll be in my head and it's just like, oh, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night. But uh, we got the aura ring when I got it. I, I charge it every day, so that's why you don't see me wearing it right now. But it's been really interesting to see. I found that I get the best night of sleep, and that it gives you like a sleep score. Mm. Uh, I get so happy when it's above ninety. Like a hundred is like a perfect yeah. night of sleep. When you get above ninety, you get this like. So crown what if you sometimes. get below ninety? What do you do? Uh, do you do, you well, do something I would say about for it? Me, below eighty-five is like, I generally don't do as well the next day if I get a sleep score below eighty-five. And usually I found that if I go to bed before 1130, there you go. wake up there's around, the, there's the yeah, data. I'll give you some more data 730. too. Right? I want to hear this. Guy. Yeah. Uh, another thing is there, it measures the amount of wake ups that you have in the middle of the night. And uh, I noticed that when I wear earplugs, the amount of wake ups that I have drastically decreases. So you basically what? can like split test certain. I look at people that sleep with their earbuds in, like I'll have my camera guys travel with me. I'm like, how are you sleeping with earbuds well, in? But well, not earbuds, ear but earplugs. Oh, yeah. earplugs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So just basically 
muting all noise. Yeah, that will drastically decrease the amount of wake-ups that I have, which is really important because wake-ups can pull you out of very deep sleep, which is hard to fall into. And the deep sleep, like REM sleep, is where you get most of your energy the following day. Okay, that's great data. Yeah. And there's a bunch of other cool data. Like it gives you your temperature. I remember my housemate, he noticed on his graph every single day his temperature was increasing a little bit. And he's like, what's going on? A few days later, he was sick. Now, he could have taken precautionary measures once he saw his body That's freaking cool. Exactly. And on top of that, it measures like, I don't Wait, know. Wait, hold on. This measures your your REM and your body temperature? Yeah, it basically divides up your sleep. And yeah, it measures a bunch of stuff. It measures the yeah. amount of steps yeah. that you take in a day, the distance traveled. Calories. So if I play, yeah, calories burn. So if I, it's basically like an Apple Watch, but in a ring form. Also with, that's like way more comfortable. For like a married dude, that thing makes so much freaking sense. I would honestly, I would strongly recommend it to you. I've been planning on getting one for a super long time. So where, where do I go again? Auraring.com. Oh, oh well, you we know have what? A link in There's the a link down below in the Jeez, description. See, we didn't even plan for this to happen. Jeez, we did not no. even plan for this to happen, but we appreciate Aura. I love their product. I literally wear yeah. it all the time. Okay. So one thing I'll, I will I'll say get though, it. one thing I will say, you should get it. I will. Uh, is that for the most part, I don't drink and I went to bed and I think I had maybe like two drinks or something like that. Went to bed horrible night of sleep and it shows your REM sleep was like next to nothing and the times that I was awake it like shows you these peaks when like you wake up was just like peak 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 I didn't even realize it so if I have a drink and I go to bed it just screws up my sleep and it shows you like where you wake up I don't even remember any of it but apparently it woke up like four times that's freaking cool yeah the coolest part is just split testing stuff like wearing like something to cover up your eyes so it's pitch black and you see oh how does this affect my sleep does it make it more efficient less efficient same as the earplugs actually you start you um when we started the podcast you said you were sleep deprived because you guys were jet lagged and stuff coming from austin Sleep. You can see my sleep stats. I'll show them to you. You had a great night. I got like a ninety last night. Really? Yeah. I like you guys are probably texting each other in the morning. Yo, bro. (laughs) Screenshotting. Like what you get? I do that with my housemates because we all every single person in my house is ordering. They should create a a competitive part of the app where you can like bring your buddies in and you're competing and you get like points at the end of the week. That has been one of the best like surprising byproducts of having this ring is that it makes me competitive about my sleep. That's freaking so cool. I'm sure Graham yeah. has experienced that's that some adult some stuff. Right there. What do you have looking at the units for you? Um, before I buy them. Um, so before we buy them, if it's a multifamily deal, we'll typically hire an inspector to go and take a look at the property or the person who um, brought the deal to me. Cause these multi, most of the multifamily deals that I'm doing, people are bringing them to me and I pay them to be my boots on the ground, FaceTime me, do all that kind of stuff. But they're not even FaceTiming me anymore. They FaceTime Molly or somebody on my team. It's pretty good. That's, I mean, that's, isn't that the goal of a business is to like not be involved? I love the fact that you just brought that up, man, because this is one of the most like contended on topics of this entire podcast. The viewers love it. Some viewers like it. Some viewers don't. But it's about, yeah, like the reason that you want to build up a business or the reason of continuing to build a business is ideally one day to take a step back or to at least move in that direction. I'm, I don't know. Is, Is that, you guys disagree with this? Yes. Kind of. I like to be very hands-on with everything. Okay, so here's, I'm maybe a difference between even you two. I'm, I love working mm-hmm. and you love working too. Mm-hmm. You love working, I'm sure. I don't want to stop working. I just want to work on new things that I can learn. That's it. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I go, okay, like this new thing that Armand, who's behind the scene right here, Berkeley educated, super smart guy. The reason he's with me is because I've gained resources and education that have presented new opportunities and now we've got Mr. Cooper basically saying, hey, we'll give you these these mortgages. We'll pay you to take these mortgages off our, our, our books. And I'm sitting here going, okay, how do we do that? How do we te- technically handle that many properties? And I want to expand my mind and try new things and venture out and leave my businesses operating the way they're currently operating. I don't 
I don't want to be in them every day, but I still want to enjoy being able to step in the office and say hi to everybody. But I want to be out building new businesses. Yeah, right? that makes perfect sense. I'm not the go to the mountains and retire kind of guy or hang out on the beach kind of guy. I just want to learn new stuff. That's it. N new people, new things, new experiences every single day. I think that's huge. For, for me personally, like I know for a fact, like if I do something for too long, I'll just get tired of it. Graham, on the other hand, like he has been doing the main channel thing, like the same thing, same format for I like very, the same. I could eat the same thing every day and be totally fine. So I, I do. We, we yeah. need the Grams of the world. We do. Yeah. yeah. They keep the world. Okay. So are we going to get you a deal? Yes. Are we gonna get, you, you want a rental? 100% we'll do it. Uh, I would love a long-term rental. I really would. Okay, I so Airbnb is not the best idea. I mean, why is it not the best idea? I think it's I the greatest idea. Long-term rental? Yeah. I think long-term rental is better. What's cool about a mortgage is that two years later, you're going to raise your rents a little bit. Four years later, you're going to raise your rents a little bit. Four years later, you're going to raise your rents a little bit. Now you're cash flowing $800, $900 a month. But guess what? Your mortgage payment is the exact same. It's fixed. So you're going to continue to cash flow more and more and more, and it compounds. You also get the, the the payoff, the mortgage balance gets paid off and you build that equity. You go get three or four or five of those. I mean, think about like how much the average person would need to buy to completely never worry about money again. How many rentals to retire and be done? Where? In Vegas? Vegas. Like, do they own them outright? No, no. Well, not yet. But let's say they're, let's say they're 30 years old and they're going to retire at 60 or 65 years old. How many properties in oh, there? Probably like two, two, three, four. Yeah. There you go. Like that. So like you buy, how old are you right now? 24. Bro. How old are you, man? I've been trying to figure this out this entire time. I'm How old do you think? Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, I'm 39. Okay. Deal. 39. You can tell in the gray, the gray mm -hmm. hair and the beard, right? So I look at you and I'm like, if you bought one house a year, that's it. That's it. By the time you're 50 years old, your, your real estate portfolio is probably 15 million bucks. I will say this much. That was actually my plan. My plan was to buy one every single year. Let's buy one. I bought my last house in 2021 mm -hmm. and I was going to buy in 2022, but the entire market just continually. Ooh, went I got out. a, I got a question for we yeah. wrap up. Do you believe that buying your primary resident residence is an asset or a liability? I think it depends on the price. Okay. I think I like it depends on the what you buy. It, you know, if you buy like average person, just average uh, person. We're talking average person here. We're gosh. not talking about somebody yeah, with a 25. average person. I think it's, it's an asset. Unless they overspend or unless they sell after a few years. I love this because I'm friends with Grant Cardone. We argue about this over dinner. I'm friends with other people like Kiyosaki, and mm -hmm. we've argued about this too. I, I think, they, well, they go, well, you should just rent because pouring your money into your, your uh, mortgage is not making you any money. I'm like, but I'm spending roughly the same amount of money on rent. And here's the thing that happens with a rent payment. It goes up every three years. My mortgage payment doesn't. So over the course of a 30-year mortgage, I pay way less money on my primary residence than I ever would on rent. The difference is I own something. And so I, I believe that a primary residence is actually an asset. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're buying a $5 million home and it's costing you $50,000 $50, $50, a year to keep it up and pay the mortgage, then it's definitely a liability. Yep. But for the average person, it's an asset. So your house right now that you have, it's an asset. I bought it for the reasons of like wanting to- for Jacket makes sense because he could rent out the bedrooms. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing, doing that right now. Yeah. Yeah, so you should get a second one. Mm -hmm. That's a smaller one, right? The payment on it, is, let's say, is like twelve hundred bucks. What's your payment on yours right now? My PITI or yeah, my, yeah, my, PITI, yeah, uh, twenty three hundred. Okay, so if you could find a three bed, two bath in Vegas for let's say thirteen hundred bucks a month, you could rent it out for seventeen hundred bucks a month. Would you do that? Yeah, but I'm just the PITI at thirteen hundred seems. Oh, I guess maybe with your methods, maybe it isn't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, three percent, two point eight percent. I'll get you. I'll get you a mortgage in less than thirty days that you can say no to. 
I'll get you a mortgage in Vegas that is less than 3% that I will present to you and you can feel comfortable saying no. And you can then go, all right, I'd rather watch you do it. I'll come up to, I come to Vegas a dozen times a year. I'll come up, let you walk through the property. You I can, would do that. You watch me as I do it. And then I'll present you another one. And you can say no to that one too. And then the third one, you'll go, dude, why didn't I just do this? Okay. That did happen to me with Chandler David Smith. He presented me with this. I love like, Chandler. With this uh, fourplex, oh, wasn't that I the, think. The du the du and you turn it down? It was a duplex. Or fourplex. I think it was a duplex. Yeah, because I didn't have enough money. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's fine. Tell, it was, tell oh, Chandler you know to use you know, creative finance. I think, I think, didn't I offer to front you that? Um, yeah, down, but yeah. I wanted to buy a house. I, I wanted that my own it. personal yeah, house, and it. I didn't that have enough it. money to buy both. Where was the duplex here? Utah. Oh yeah, that's different. I mean, you want to yeah. you? I would always suggest people should buy your primary oh, wait, residence. No, no. It was it was Idaho. Yep. Mix the two up. It was yeah. Idaho yeah. Falls. Yep. yep, that's where Chandler. That, I was. I lived in Idaho Falls. Chandler, David Smith, and I are friends, but we've never met. Mm -hmm. We're always DMing and talking cool. to each other about real estate. He's such a cool guy. Oh, he's awesome. I love the guy. Now I feel like I should get you a duplex. I would do a duplex, man. I would do a duplex. Graham, if I found you a deal, would you do a deal? Yeah. Okay, we're gonna find. We're gonna find a deal. Okay. I would honestly, yeah. I would love that. That sounds yeah. really exciting. For mine, I want one deal. I want one home run, big deal. A big deal a meaning big deal. like a big house or a, a good cash flow? Uh, good cash flow, low cost to get into the deal. Yeah, I would want something that's probably worth like three to 10 million plus. Oh, damn. Yeah, okay. That's what I'm saying. Like one, one like and you would big move daddy into it? deal. No, no. I'm just saying for to rent out. Okay. Yeah. I, I could get you a yeah, seller yeah, yeah. finance deal at $3 million easy. I'd consider it. Okay. If, cool. it, if it makes sense for the You right would rent numbers. it out for like an Airbnb or would you rent no. it out for like a, to a luxury, like a celebrity? Type? No, I don't want, I don't want like a house. So it would have to be like multifamily oh, commercial or like something easy. like that. Yeah. The problem is I would not sell that to you. Yeah. I feel like you uh, those are, so I, I've yeah. now spent, spent my focus now on multifamily. So those deals, uh, I have an, a multifamily analyst full time on my team and all he does is look at those deals mm -hmm. all day long. And we buy Are you it. buying all of them? I either buy them or I wholesale them to my to people that I that learn from me. So I like how often would you see like let's say like a ten million dollar one like a five to ten million dollar property coming up, seller finance that makes sense every day. So you but you can't possibly buy one every day. I so can't. So I either so, people I right, hold, I assign them or I wholesale yeah. them. Yeah. The thing is, what he was yeah. what he was referring to yeah. is that what he would be doing for me is more of a homie thing. But you can't get the homie deal for the five million dollars, Graham. Want, that's not it, just it, a homie. Graham, deal. here's what like here's what here's what I'll do. <laughs> here's what I'll do. Deal. On a five million dollar deal, <laughs> yeah. I I would. Here's the challenge: is you got to have a, you got to have somebody operate that too, right? Mm -hmm. So what I would do is I would let you come in on the deal, and if you let me operate the deal and let me be your partner on it, I would let you come in on it. But I'm not going to let those deals go. Well, uh, one more it, question for you: You yeah. mentioned in your life that your life has changed in in different categories, like getting married, having kids. Yeah. Uh, what have those changes been? Getting married is realizing that my wife is way more significant than just a wife. She becomes a partner, a confidant the calming factor in my life. And when you're younger, you don't know those things. And so you have to change from being a selfish man to understanding you're in a relationship. That mm -hmm. was hard for me um, because I'm just like, go, 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 take over the world type of thing. And there's a balance. And the great thing that a woman brings to uh, at least a marriage in my traditional marriage is that my wife brings a balance to the kids that I don't bring. Right. And so that's the other thing too, is that you start seeing kids and your kids parrot things that you do. They're like little parrots. And you start learning things like, oh, wow, I can't say that. I can't act this way. I can't get on the phone and bark at somebody about something because then my kids learn that behavior. So those things change. And then also the way I travel, like I flew in today and I'm flying back tonight immediately because I want to be around my kids. And it's, it's something subconscious. It's not a conscious thing. 
my body requires like some it craves being around my kids and so like i'll i'll go um new orleans lafayette corpus christi um, or sorry houston corpus christi san antonio san angelo to dallas in a three-week period and i bring my wife and kids with me everywhere i go mm. if i'm gone more than let's say 48 hours i bring my wife and kids with me because i you never want i will never want to spend a day without yeah. did you think that was going to be the case before having kids so i come from a family of 12 kids okay so my mom and dad had 12 kids i'm number three so family was really, really important. My parents, grew, when we were raised, my parents would wake me up at 4.30 in the morning, we'd read the Bible together. So like being around my family was a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up, I was like, oh man, I'm not going to have that. It was like too much. It felt suffocating. It, like we'd go on vacations and my dad, we, we'd go to McDonald's and my dad wouldn't let us order. He's like, give me 12 breakfast burritos. And, and that's all you got. So when I got older, I go, I'm going to have a family and I'm going to let my kids do this, this, and this, and I'm going to da, da, da. And then you start having kids and you realize, dang, my dad was actually pretty smart. Like he was pretty efficient. He was this. I thought that I knew better. And then when you get older, you go, I didn't know anything. So you guys, you're, you're planning on having kids at some point? One point. One point. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're really young. So um, it is the most joy I receive in my life comes from my children. And it's cliche, so you understand it. But um, I also start realizing that I have to be more intelligent with my time and protecting my space. I also learned having kids that public school, how bad public school is. And so I'm doing like, you know, Heather Torres from Think Media and like Sean Cannell and all mm -hmm. them. So I talked to Heather about that. I think we're going to start homeschooling our kids and pulling them out of like traditional school. And why not private school? So private school is kind of the same thing. The, the problem with private school, and this is where, you know, talking, I sat down with dinner uh, with Elena and Grant probably 30 days ago. And Elena was talking about the problem with private school is you're still dropping your kids off and your kids are now dead set on a schedule. And when you're traveling and you, you, like right now, you're, you guys are starting to travel. You guys are going out and doing podcasts and you guys are going to go be on Wolf of Wall Street and Ryan Surhan and all these people you're traveling all over. If you have kids and those kids are in school and it's Monday through Friday, now you have to wait for them to be on vacation for you to go do your business stuff. And so you start learning private school doesn't satisfy that homeschool does. And so homeschool allows you to be an enterprise owner and be a, a family man as well. Do you worry though, that they're not being exposed to different people, cultures, I hope ideas, that, to be honest, it sounds really bad. I hope they're not exposed to what I was exposed to. I was exposed to people that grew up playing video games. I was exposed to people that were doing drugs. But, I never, I've never, but drank. you turned out great. But my brother killed himself. I had a brother hung himself because my brother was exposed to that. And I was not susceptible to that type of stuff. I never wanted to, I never drank. I've never smoked, but my brother hung himself. What was the difference between you and your brother? I think the difference between me and my brother, so I have my brother, his name is Corbin. I named yeah. my daughter after him. Um, the difference was that my brother wanted to be the cool kid and he would try and impress the kids that were doing the stupid things. And, um, he got sucked into it. And you know, there's people that are susceptible to like alcoholism and there's other people could drink every single day of their life and then turn it off. Mm -hmm. I never drank. What happened to me is actually the reason why I never drank is I, in sixth grade, one of my buddies, Tyler Korth had a brother that came down in the basement, completely obliterated. I'm in sixth grade, so I don't know really what's going on. But he's stench, like just alcohol stench. And he's getting aggressive, getting aggressive. He starts punching things, punching holes in the walls. And then Tyler goes, oh, don't, wor don't, don't mind him. He's just drunk. This happens all the time. And so something implanted in my brain, like that's what happens when you drink. And whenever I was around people drinking, I was like, oh, I'm good. Like my wife mm -hmm. drinks. I don't. 
And it was something weird that was implanted in me. But my brother, like you, the second he touched the stuff, he just got sucked in. So do you think maybe he was a little bit more predispositioned to that than you For were? For sure, probably, yeah. And do you feel like that is maybe just the, the just the, I don't want to say the luck of the draw, yeah, I think but just I, like. Yeah, I just think there's luck were, of the draw. It's yeah. the same thing with people that have like Hashimoto's and people that have autoimmune disease, people that have yeah. like obesity issues that no matter how well they eat or how they work out, their body is just a specific type. I think that I got the luck of the draw that that was never something that ever entered into my life. But you think it's yeah. just like biological I think phenomenon so. or just statistics? Well, think about this. So I have a, I have a bro- older brother named Chance and hopefully he doesn't ever watch this, but my brother Chance actually was the one that introduced a lot of these things to my brother Corbin. And um, so Chance was 18 or no, I'm sorry. Chance was 16 at the time and he would get Corbin who was like nine, 10 to sneak out of the house. And Chance would go hang out with his friends and drink. And my little younger brother, Corbin, was like, oh, cool. I get to hang out with like my bigger brother and mm-hmm. all his friends. Well, guess what? My brother, Chance, is the head of payroll at Vivint. Like, he mm-hmm. made it out. He's like, the dude is smart. He's intelligent. He's got a beautiful family. He just one day goes, I'm done. I'm done doing whatever. He turned it off. But my brother, Corbin, could never kick it. And my parents took him to uh, boys camp. Mm-hmm. Like, they took him to rehab centers. I took him to everything you could possibly imagine. And, um, I went on, so I'm, I'm Mormon and I went on a mission to Korea. So I, I get home from my mission from Korea and I'm like, where's my brother Corbin? Where's he at? Where's he at? And where's he at? And like, I couldn't, I was searching for, for him for, you know, a couple of months. And then I found him in like a drug den mm. and I pulled him out, got him a job. And three, four months later, he found himself back into a drug den. It just, mm. I, it just, it gets, I think once you get into that world, it, the people, I'm not an addict, so I don't know, but people yeah. that say, once an addict, always an addict, I think is just the claws of what he was into just couldn't get removed from him. Mm. Horrible. It's interesting because I have a brother too. Obviously, this is very much different from your example, but he and I, obviously we grew up with the exact same parents in the exact same house with the exact same like finances, the exact same everything, right? Yeah. But we are, we're fairly similar in certain ways that we would be because we're brothers, but we're also very different in a lot of other ways. And I wonder if we went under the exact same like parenting, right? Like what would have made us different? And I always kind of like toy in the back of my mind at the fact that like, could we have been parented a little bit different? I know my parents were a little bit more strict on me than they were on him. Um, Usually it's the other way around, right? No, man, they like were, the, they the were the much first more, child. They're more strict with. And then yeah. the second it's that like, was oh, my, that was our, my experience. My, yeah. like by the time my parents got to t- child number 12, it was like, I, we don't care what time you come home. Like, yeah. I, you know, we've dealt with this. Oh, I had a strict curfew. I got grounded for 10 months. Until what, what did you bro? do? They, uh, <laughs> mom and dad, are, my mom and dad are gonna be watching this. Uh, you gotta be like, Gigi, don't watch this. No, Gigi can watch this. She probably heard about it. What did it you do for ten okay. months, bro? So I just had, I was a bad, I wasn't a bad student, but like in middle school, like I was a pretty like mischievous kid. And typically, the kids that are like, yeah, mischievous, the mischievous kids that like end up like you, that are like really awesome, they're the ones that really school is really hard on you. I school was fairly hard on me like at a, at a younger age but then like as I grew older I kind of realized okay it's not too bad but it was funny because at, while I was growing up a lot of people thought that like okay this kid is going to be kind of like the degenerate mm-hmm. you know what I mean what's I mean, funny is like you were probably talking to everybody making friends with everybody making jokes the whole time but like when you become an adult those are actually superpowers yeah and nobody teaches you that in school like nobody says hey Jack just so you know 
you're going to end up just fine, bro. You I got, was I was generally very good at socializing and yeah. making friends, but there, I that's was just all kind of life like a is. mischievous kid, right? And um, I just basically had a parent-teacher conference that went very, very poorly. What happened? Uh, I it was Mrs. Schneider's class. Mrs. And, Schneider. Uh, and uh, she's she watching. No, she didn't right know now. what she was doing. It's not her fault. It's not her fault. I remember uh, I was going into the class with my mom, and my, we got the parent-teacher conference, which is never a good sign. And she basically just said, uh, "Your son," and I quote is an extreme distraction in class, which wow. basically my mom's a teacher. She's Bro. a public school teacher. So she knows like she does not want to have to deal with that. And uh, she understands where Miss Schneider was coming from. She's a very empathetic person, which is, I think is beautiful. Yeah. And she grounded me. And uh, for 10 wait, months, wait, wait, what well, were you the, doing the in class? Um, <laughs> Talking to everybody. A lot of stuff, man. So I sat in Passing a normal notes. seat. It was a no, no, it wasn't like that, man. It, I was sat in a normal row and I would just I don't know, man. I was just always sleeping in class or I was like throwing things or I was like with my friends. It was never like throwing things at someone, but it was mm -hmm. like playing games with my friends and talking and laughing and like, you know what I mean? Chasing each other and whatnot. And she created her, uh, her own desk for me. It was right at the front of the class. So she had her podium right here. You could barely squeeze between my desk and the podium. Wow. And then behind me was the normal row of classes. Mm. You should, when you buy real estate, you should have an LLC name that's called Extreme Distraction LLC. Extreme Distraction. That's a good idea. That is a great <laughs> Bro, idea. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, but it actually didn't even end uh, up working, me being right in front of her podium. She actually Did your just, mom actually uphold the 10-month? No, well, yeah. So I was grounded for 10 months, but initially- what was the grounding? And why not, so why not nine away, like, months and not, why not 11 months? Exactly. Why 10 so months? Let me explain some things. I know it sounds kind of weird, but she didn't initially ground me with the idea of- me being grounded for 10 months. Mm -hmm. It was just like, yo, you know, you're grounded. And until we fix some things, until you better yourself, then you can become ungrounded. So she took away my iPod touch. She took away uh, my PlayStation controller that I like just got. And also my birthday, I remember was in a couple of weeks. And she goes, and I remember we're walking away from the parent-teacher conference. She's like, there goes your birthday. Oh, <laughs> no yeah, yeah. Wow. And I was like, How did you, you know, feel in that moment. I was, I was upset, but I got it. I'm like, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like I was annoying kid in class. Like I just, I definitely didn't help out with the environment. I was oh just having gosh. fun though. And then, yeah, I was just grounded. And uh, I remember it was actually kind of a blessing because we were actually robbed that year and the people broke into the house. They stole a bunch of stuff. They didn't steal my iPod touch. Wow. Cause it was hidden. By my <laughs> That's so, so good. So I actually yeah. ended up getting my iPod touch back and my PlayStation remote. They blessing did take the PlayStation, always but I looking. had the remote still. <laughs> That's always insane. looking for the oh silver lining. Gosh. Oh my yeah. gosh. But I ended up just kind of correcting some things. I, I became better. I remember like a few months in, I got caught cause I, I took one of their old phones, the iPhone. And I was like texting my girlfriend at the time or whatever, like late at night. And she saw it mm -hmm. as it fell out of my pocket or something. Wow. She's like, you're not supposed to have this. So I got wow, regrounded again. And it was just like, grounding here goes your Christmas. Me. Exactly. So yeah, it wasn't, it, I, it wasn't that bad. And I definitely think I learned a lot of lessons. And honestly, like who needs an iPod touch when you're, how old was I? 13, 14. It was probably just a good thing for me not to have that anyways. Probably. Well, it, it turned out great. Does Thanks. Mr. Schneider know that you're on one of the coolest podcasts of all time? Uh, I don't think she knows that. Reach out. Send Let's her this have link, her on the bro. Podcast, dude. I she would didn't. Loved it. She didn't do anything wrong. I would like, love she to was have just, her on the she podcast. She was just explaining what was happening to my mother. So you know, Miss Schneider. You know, if you ever end up seeing this, thank you for what you did. Like one of one of Jack's schoolmates needs to send this to Miss Schneider, please. please. She's I, a lovely woman. She yeah. really is. Like, I have nothing bad to say about her. So. I think it's fine. To all right, all right. Okay, so we're doing it. We're doing. We're doing a deal together. Deal. Extreme distraction LLC. Cool. Cool. Down. Thank you. Really appreciate really you coming appreciate on. It. Yeah, it's an incredible. Thank, you guys are my heroes. I yeah, appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you for making the trip. And uh, 
Make sure to get your free stock. And with that said, you guys, down below in the description. Sign up for public. Down below in the description. Feel free to check him out. His YouTube channel will probably be there too. And until next time. (laughs) Cool. Thanks, man. I would be interested in doing a deal, by the way. Let's do one.